When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. This episode is a very special episode. It was ripped directly from Friday night's live stream with James Lindsay and Vocal Distance, wherein we talk about hyper-reality, critical theory, and postmodernism, which are our habitual haunts. Uh, I've cut out the first nine minutes or so of the intro because there were some low blood sugar YouTube people who decided to come down on me for the broish banter that I included. So we'll save you guys that. If you feel like you're missing anything, you can go over to the YouTube channel and find it there. It's called Critical Critical Theory Theory. And uh, let's get to it. So here's Vocal Distance and James Lindsay. All right. What are we going to, what are we getting critical about? We're supposed to get critical. Let's critical. get critical, Let- critical. That's right. Let me hear James Lindsay talk. (laughs) Is critical theory just the Hegelian dialectic applied to every foundation of a society's culture? Hmm. Yes. Okay, well, hold on. What's a Hegelian dialectic? I guess we all know that. Ah, man. Okay, we we all do know that. So Hegel had this idea. He didn't really have this idea. Kant had this idea of a dialectical process where – you take ideas and you run them into opposing ideas, a thesis yeah. running into its antithesis. And that sometimes when you do that, you can then find a way that you understand both concepts in a similar or under a single light that would be called a synthesis. And Hegel had a variety of views about this. And usually the dialectic is attributed to him um, because he thought this was a great idea to apply to the to the kind of grand sweeping ideas of society to to reframe how society uh, understands itself. Um, he also believed that everything contains its own contradiction, Hegel did, and so that if you draw out the contradictions in everything that are inherent with it, within it, then you have that dialectical process occurring so that the ideas are refining themselves and uh, heading toward a more and more perfected state where they've been fully synthesized to so uh so that's sort of what it is, but kind of in, in a shorter understanding is it's that you are going to take whatever is going on in society, then you're going to compare it against a kind of radical ideal, show where it's problematic. So that's where you're going to have a what's going on in society becomes the thesis. This is how it gets applied, whether Hegel applied it this way or not is, you know, another matter we could talk about young Hegelian the young Hegelian approach, and then not the young Hegelian, but the young Hegelian. Okay. No, not as young as in as in younger people, as in not old, not the olds. So right after Hegel, um, there were two big schools of thought that Hegel was like a rock star of his day. We're talking beginning of the 1800s, and so he was a rock star of his day. And uh, two huge schools of thought kind of sprung up right in the wake of Hegel. One was old Hegelianism and one was young Hegelianism. Old Hegelians were mostly older social conservatives who believed that what Hegel was describing through the perfection of society was already reached. The ideal state had been reached in the Prussian state of the 1830s and 40s. 
the young Hegelians were like, that's obviously wrong. Stuff is not perfect. We have lots of progressive work to do. And so progressivism in a kind of very real sense is sort of young Hegelianism. Hmm. Um, and what all of Hegel thought, I mean, he's very voluminous. He's a, He was attempting to pull out a full systematic philosophy of everything in the universe. And so it's, it's a lot there. It's very difficult to say, oh, well, Hegel... Yeah. Is this kind of very narrow thing, right? Because he had a lot of stuff. His thought, he, he wrote over decades. His thought evolved. His thought changed. But this kind of young Hegelian movement arose to apply the dialectic in a particular way, this process of colliding the contradictions of society against one another in order to produce social change. And that process was picked up by Marx. Marx was like, I know what to do with this. We're going to make it this thing about, you know, economics. We're going to look at how the contradictions capitalism. Yes, dialectical materialism. Dialectical. So we're now going to look at the contradictions and the material conditions of people's lives that capitalism is supposed to be bringing, you know, all ships are supposed to be rising, things are supposed to be getting better, we're supposed to have more leisure time, but look, none of these things are happening. So that's thesis, antithesis, and then we'll try to find a synthesis, which he believed would be the progression of history, kind of as, he as Hegel had outlined it, but now in a materialist sense, from at his point, late industrial capitalism into socialism and then on to communism where you have a perfected environment with a stateless society. Well, that kind of was the idea is that what we're going to do is we're going to look at the promises being made by the philosophies or the approaches of society. We're going to look at how those things in practice contradict themselves. And then we're going to uh, try to, to create a different way of thinking about this. So for Marx, it would have been to agitate the working class to look at the contradictions of capitalism, to synthesize into a proletariat class that wanted to think about these things in a class-conscious way and create a new way of thinking about the world um, and a new way of operating the world, which would be socialism when they finally took over, which would you be, know, you know, the workers' parties doing that. There's something in what you are saying that um, makes that phrase, that constant refrain about the work, doing the work, needing to do the work, and the work is never done, but we need to do it right now, which is it kind of that it seems like that is the where Hegelian progressivism is where that kind of comes from, that, that idea or that, that yeah, injunction. I mean, there are different interpretations of Hegel's meta metaphysics and there is a particular kind of older conservative interpretation that's sometimes referred to as his pre-Kantian interpretation. The question was, did did Hegel understand and agree with Kant, yes or no? And there's an older conservative criticism of Hegel that says that he either wasn't aware of or this particular aspect or didn't care or rejected this aspect of Kant, which is a critique of pure reason. Uh, and therefore was advocating for a metaphysic where the ideas of society are going to move through this process of people engaging in the contradictions, bringing the contradictions up, doing the dialectical process. When you get on the other side of the dialectical process, then you enter into the situation where the world spirit, the Weltgeist, realizes itself, becomes the absolute spirit. You're in a perfected utopia. And that therefore brings to the progressive activists the idea that the faster and more aggressively we do this, the sooner we get to the utopia. The sooner we get to the end of history where we will know who was on the right and wrong sides of it. Um, but this this kind of talos of history, this this 
purpose to the arc of history mm-hmm. toward, per, uh, you know, a progressive arc of history toward a perfected society is really kind of what's driving progressivism in that regard. And they think that doing the work is meaning dragging, the, dragging up the contradictions to move the dialectic along is the relevant thing that has to be done and has to be done as quickly as possible because we live in an oppressive hellhole until we achieve um, resolving or synthesizing all of the contradictions or if depending on who you look at the postmodernists being kind of post-marxian rather than neo-marxian did not want to turn the dialectic so much uh, where they tried to seek a synthesis of everything they wanted to in fact do what adorno referred to i know he's a neo-marxist not a postmodernist, but his 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 book negative dialectics which was 1966, so right around the same time as the postmodernists are emerging, is like a very postmodern book. Um, the goal, and this is, you can see, kind of with Derrida's deconstruction, it's kind of the same idea, is to now bring up the thesis, bring up the antithesis, and then don't seek a th- synthesis. Leave, leave that at particulars. Tear everything apart and leave it in its particular form. And so um, you can kind of see that same kind of mentality there, too. So the goal was either to find those perfect synthesis uh, states, which is what the kind of neo-Marxists and the Marxists and other Hegelian-type progressives would think, or to just tear things apart because it's a hopeless endeavor, and that's sort of the postmodern approach. And when you say, well, what in the world is woke if it's kind of the mixture of these two things? Well, it finds fruit in the, that contradiction for itself, but it's uh, kind of doing some of both wherever it turns out to be most useful to itself at the time. Uh, and so it's it's got this... Yeah. Kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I wanted to say evil, but it's not really fair to call this evil. There are evil things about it for sure, but it has this kind of dual nature. It gets to play, play, talk out of both sides of its mouth. It's almost duplicitous in a, in a very strict sense, and that it gets to do the synth- the synthesis when it wants to. But then the second the synthesis isn't the right thing anymore, it gets to switch to this negative dialectic. So it uses both positive and negative dialectic according to which gives it the most advantage at the moment. Um, and just to give you a kind of a piece of evidence that this really is the, the logic, in the book Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which I quote all the time, there is actually a paragraph where it describes minority groups within minorities. So maybe that would be like an intersectionality, you know, black women within black people. Uh, or, you know, we could get into more granular. We could look at Asian Americans and break that down into the Chinese Americans and then Chinese American women versus Korean Americans and Korean American ones. You can break down into these more and more granular identity categories. And then the paragraph ends with, and so the dialectic progresses. That's literally okay. the end of the paragraph in Critical Race Theory and Introduction. So this is the mentality. This is the logic underneath how all this stuff's kind of rolling. Vocal, you want to jump in? Um, oh, I don't know where I want to, where I want to take this exactly. I, I think that something that's important to remember is that, um, in, in the formation of how all this stuff fits together, because people say, well, I mean, it looks like it's philosophically contradictory. There's a very real sense in which a lot of the activists are picking stuff up and then just taking what they find useful and 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 worrying about whatever contradictions might be there later right we we're going to we're going to pick up you know 
Marks, and we're going to pick up Marcuse, and then we're going to pick up Adorno, and then we're going to also pick up Foucault. And you might say, well, wait, one's postmodern, and he's attacking the 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 critical theorists or deconstructing them. How how do you do both? And and their answer is, well, what we find useful in Foucault, we're going to use, and what we find useful in Adorno and Marcuse, we're also going to use. And so. The mistake is to think that the religion is formed, the religion of wokeness is formed via um, a genuine, straightforward philosophical process with a focus on the philosophy, rather than to say that the religion is formed um, by a particular form of political activism that's picking up its concepts as it goes. It's 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 not that the philosophy picks up the politics. It's that the politics picks up the philosophy in a very real way. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, yep. when you throw out so logical the, consistency, you can do that. Yeah, and and this is one of the things that. So when you said James that. Um, um, that he says leave it at particulars. Th- there's a a video you can find of a professor at Yale named Paul Fry, who's a literature professor. And when he does his teaching on postmodernism, one of the things that he does is he, his, one of the ways that he gets his way into the problem, because you could have a lot of starting points, right? With, with postmodernism, wherever you want. But he says, one of the things is to look at it as a sort of skepticism regarding parts to holes, right? Like, I mean, if I think of a car, and then I think of, um, I think of a of a wheel, and then I think of the tire, and then I think of the bolt. What's the relation between the bolt, and the tire, and the wheel, and the car, right? Are those unrelated objects? Well, no. Are they the same object? Well, I don't know. The tire is not the car, right? And so postmodernism would would say. Um, those are different things. Those are the same things. So, so are we going to take the car, qua car, as a car as a whole, or are we just going to say that there are these part, that the car just is a series of particular things at a particular time, and that can change? If I take the tires off the car and I replace it with, say, um, a hovercraft engine, so it hovers, is it still a car? And they would say, well. What what we call a car can change. The language can change. The language is unstable. And so he describes postmodernism as something like a a I don't know if you want to call it a pessimism or a cynicism of of parts to whole relationships. So so a good a good way to look at this is, for example, queer theory, which says you know um, um, you know what genitalia you have doesn't matter, right? And Part of the reason that is because that that's the parts to whole thing, right? Does does your reproductive organs determine what the whole organism is, right? Well, they would say no because the parts and the whole are 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 separate entities in a certain way, right? Hmm. Just like the wheel is not the car, and so when you do that, um, everything that exists merely becomes um, different combinations of of material Legos, as it were, right? So 
I am just a collection of atoms in a certain way. If you want to break me down that far, I'm just a collection of atoms. And James is just a collection of atoms. And the cat that's at my feet right now is just a collection of atoms, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does a, a Wokel or a James emerge from this? Well, there's some connection there, but they would say that there's nothing inherent and that it can be deconstructed and re-understood along whatever lines you want. So I could understand James as um, uh, a living organism. I could understand James as a mammal. I could understand James as a human being. I could understand James as a collection of body parts. I could understand James as a collection of atoms, or I could understand James as a collection of protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? And at each level of description, um, uh, you're dealing with something new and a new way of looking at it. And so, because you have this parts-to-whole thing, when you do what Marcuse does um, and say, well, we'll just leave it at particulars, you haven't entered postmodernism, but you've, you've, you've just opened yourself up to the postmodernist way of being able to say, that's right, there are no essences, there are no inherent properties of things, right? And so... There are no souls, no spirits. Um, Derrida really got on this when he was when he was writing. He said that there's there's no m the metaphysics of presence, right? Where he said there is no um, oh how does he use it? Um, there's nothing that is quintessential about anything that gives it its meaning or defines what it is. That's all misguided and wrong. All there is is the particulars and the parts to hold relations can be described as however you want. And in that regard, I can view the tire as part of the car or I could view the tire as its own independent entity. There's nothing conceptually that requires the tire to be part of the car. And in fact, when the tire bursts, it will no longer be part of the car. So in that regard, there is no inherent metaphysical or conceptual tie that forces these things to be a part of each other, they can be rearranged however you want. And once you take that step, you might not be postmodern when you say everything is just particulars, but you're knocking on the door. You're kind of you're putting the golf ball on the tee for Baudrillard, Derrida, and Foucault to come along and knock it out of the park and say, all of your essences, all of your concepts can be broken down and gotten rid of and are merely the products of social processes. There's not there's no such thing as a real arm and real fingers and real hand. It's just – those are just various levels of description that I'm imposing on this object right here, right? And and how do you get there? Well, you don't get there in one big leap. The first thing you have to do is say it's all just particulars. Once you take that step, everything is just kind of waiting. And how do they – how do things make sense then? Uh, identity? Um power? Uh, are there not like certain analyses that come in and then allow for all these constituents to be made into a whole or into a dialectic or into a synthesis that then can participate in, in some sort of historical or activist or political um, attempt or event? Well, it's not that there's no, it's that there are many. It's that there is a infinite plurality of such things, and even the the scope of the ones that we're thinking of is just a very narrow slice of all the various, as Foucault might word it, potentialities of being um, yeah. that that fit 
into that. So this is even kind of, you know, it relates to, to the so-called death of the author, which is a bit humorous, you know, because people are talking about whether or not Foucault is going to get canceled now that it's revealed that he's was a was a pedo for pretty certain. Um, and the answer I had already given at one point, of course, was no, that won't happen because they've already kind of canceled him by saying that he was white privileged and it, it doesn't really matter. But there's also this concept of the death of the author. So it doesn't matter even if they're misusing Foucault because it's their interpretation of Foucault that is what's relevant to them. So what they've basically done is given themselves infinite license where to, to act kind of like the blob and to then you know jump from one interpretation to another with no necessity of consistency between these. Um, this is why they get to act in a sense like they have a superpower. But what this does is it splits the world kind of into two. And there is kind of the world that builds and the world that deconstructs. Uh, Martin Gurry, of course, writes about that in Revolt of the Public. There's the there's the institution, and then there's there, there are that that which will centralize and that which decentralizes. Um, there are the the people who try to create something or build something, and those who try to deconstruct that thing. And they're kind of in fundamental opposition. And these post the postmodern view is we're going to live in the deconstructed. So if we decide all of a sudden we're going to launch into this interpretation or that interpretation because it's useful for what we're doing right now, then that's fine. But if later we're going to adopt a different one, well, that's also fine. Because uh, in the, the words of the famous, well, it's maybe not that famous, but it's scarred on my brain, old Saturday Night Live skit. You know, <laughs> is that wrong? Who's to say? Um, it's sort of very, uh, very, very postmodern kind of thing to do. So it gives, postmodernism came along, actually, when we look at wokeness. What, what postmodernism did by getting grafted onto the work that was being done by these critical activists already was gave it the ability to kind of slip away from any possibility of criticism because whatever it does is okay now. Whatever it does is just a social contingency. And the the politics of the moment generated the social contingencies that made that the, the correct interpretation or the right activity or the, the right way to look at things, or the right way to conceive of something or the, um, the right morals for the moment. And then in another moment that may have changed and it, it, it's kind of it's broken the link between consistency or coherence or um, even any, you know, single or solitary conception of what's right and wrong or uh, any such picture whatsoever. And which gives, you know, them the superpower of being able to move in and out and do whatever they want. The problem is, is we're kind of seeing right now where, you know, the woke movement kind of controls the Democratic Party. They've got lots of power. And they're not doing a great job. <laughs> it's like a few months in and everybody's like, what in the frick? What is going on? Everybody's like, holy shit, they can't handle their power. What is going on? And the thing is, is that, that when you've chosen the side that has no consistency and you have you have all these superpowers now, coherence isn't necessary. Turns out you are not actually equipped to build anything. You're only really equipped to kind of tear at things and play around and, and whatever. So it doesn't. It's, it's kind of an irony that, that you have this super powerful tool that allows people to seize power, but yeah. by taking up that super powerful tool, you lose the capacity to wield power. So you seize power that you can no longer wield, um, which on the one hand is hilarious and certainly going to, to burn itself out in a way, but on the other hand is horrifying because you now have sort of a thing that has no rules, that has lots of power. 
that can act kind of randomly. And the one kind of consistent thing that I can say comes with the woke movement is that whatever it does wrong, it will deny responsibility for having done so that it can continue to do whatever it's going to do next. And so and it, that's one thing it certainly is able to do is always deny responsibility for anything that goes wrong. I mean, I just saw this thing in, in Washington, uh, your, your uh, gorgeous but horrifying state, Mr. Boyce, that um, – here it comes. They're, they're only going to do like they're only going to grade like one out of fourteen students or something like that, <laughs> or some. I mean, just some absolutely ridiculous. Like, let's just you know our education plan with this ethno math and whatever else is failing miserably. So let's just hide the body and uh, report in very like they're only going to report state averages and things like this. It's just like that's okay though because um, you know the rules are what the rule. That's what the moment calls for. So that's just what we're going to do. Uh, this is a very um, what about the very right precarious situation? What about the, that's well, something there we, are many we were going to talk right? about? Uh, we have a question about did the right fail to fight it on its own terms, and what happens if the right, when the right, takes up postmodernism? How would that look like? We're well, now right associating uh, postmodernism with the left and Marxists and stuff, but what if it is taken up by the hands of? Uh, so we're going to have to talk about the Pomo trads, or is that what we're going to talk about? The Pomo trads. trads. What's a Pomo okay. trad? So a Pomo trad. Right, so we need we need to have a discussion here before we set this up. Okay, I'll local. Let, I, want, I want James hotness. to talk about the Pomo what, What's trads. the average hotness of a Pomo trad? Very hot, kind of hot. Not too hot. Oh, they're all anonymous. That's Nobody a good knows. question. They're yeah, they're all anonymous. I was going to say they're all anonymous. Nobody knows. So I want to set up something. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to set up Baudrillard, and then uh, I think once I set up Baudrillard, uh, James has had a bunch of the Pomo Trats recently pile into his mentions, so he'll be able to to comment on that maybe a little bit better than I will. So if can I set up Baudrillard because you, you'll see the Baudrillardian thing go on here. Okay, does that make sense? Who, who is Baud we can Baudrillard? Talk. He's the we Matrix can also dude. Talk okay. about Trump. Within within reference to Baudrillard as well, but Trump and Pomotrads, while there is some crossover there in support or whatever, they're certainly different phenomena. Yes, yes, that's two different types of postmodernism. So, mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about postmodernism, we have to remember that there's different strands of it, right? So, um, Derrida is one particular wing, I guess you could say, of postmodernism, right? He's a linguistic wing of postmodernism and that's, a metaphysical wing, right? That's the post-structuralist wing. Yeah, and then Foucault is sometimes gets li lumped in with post-structuralist, but Foucault is the wing is is the cynical wing dealing with power. That's the power analysis, right? And so, when we use the term deconstruction. Right when we talk about that, there are, as Jamie Cullen points out, different kinds of deconstruction now. Um, what Derrida said when Derrida said deconstruction, and what he talked about was a very particular thing that was done in a very particular way. Um, and there's now Foucauldian deconstructions, right? And then there is um, construction deconstructions that do both, and so. This is all kind of getting mixed together, but if a good way to think about it is to is to say, okay, Foucault was deconstructing things along the lines of power, 
right? That's what Foucault was really interested in. He was also interested in language, but it was it was what his work is famous for is for his discussions of power. Derrida was also interested in power and talked about it quite a lot, but he was focused, or at least the, the his impact and what he was doing. And and where he got famous was in was in literary theory for his work on language. So, what I want to I want to bring up another postmodernist who kind of is lurking there, and that's Jean Baudrillard. So, in order to understand Jean Baudrillard, we need to go we need to rewind back a little bit. And in in the fifties and sixties, there was a guy named Guy Debord, and Guy Debord was a Marxist. And a member of what was called the Situationist International. And the Situationist International was a group of social revolutionaries, artists, uh, um, social critics, and things of that nature who exist or Marxist in their orientation and who were attempting, as near as I can tell, to bring about something like a social revolution. That was what they were after. So, Debord wrote a book called The Society of the Spectacle, and, and in that book, Debord argues that everything has become part of the spectacle, and what he means by the spectacle is that everything becomes about appearances, and what he says is capitalism has produced so much wealth that it's not just that we're accumulating stuff for the sake of accumulating stuff. What he says is we accumulate stuff and we value things based on what they are as images, right? So like a status symbol, a, like like Nike's. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I buy things because of the image I want to project about myself, or I the image I think other people will see in me, or the status that I am trying to project. That's what we're doing when we're dealing with, with Guy Debord. He says it's a spectacle. And everything – it's not just that it's advertising and mass media are beaming images into every home, although it is that. What he thinks is that all of life is now mediated by the appearances, right, by what things look like. The actual utility of the object is not the point. What the point is is what the object represents and how it fits together with everything else, right? So – um, let me just pull my notes up here because I made some notes about this. Debord, when he's 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 clearly a Marxist, um, and he's okay. So he's saying the stuff about images and and where value lies no longer in the utility of things, uh, no longer in the function. But in the status and the symbol and what it makes you look like and how it looks. And, but he's putting that within a Marxist frame or an anti-capitalist frame? Yeah, so he's, he's a Marxist. He's basically taking Marx, um, the Marxist critique and, and he's just pushing it further. Because what he's saying is where, where Marx was talking about, about different kinds of value, right? Mm -hmm. um, exchange value and... Uh, utility value, I guess you could call it, right? Um, um, Debord is talking about the things that are valued for the image that they project, right? So, um, 
a nice way to put it in the rebel cell. What they say is a nice way to break Dennis critique is to say that the world we live in is not real. Consumer capitalism has taken every authentic human experience, transformed it into a commodity, and then sold it back to us through advertising and mass media. So every part of human life has been drawn into the spectacle, which is nothing but a system of symbols and representations governed by its own internal logic. Um, I think it's tempting to think he's just doing a critique of, of the saturation of media, but I think it's more than that. I think he's arguing that the culture of consumerism has created a situation where people buy things because of what the things they buy represent, not because they need them. Um, they want for, to create for themselves an image. So he says, DeBort says, considered in its own terms, the spectacle is an affirmation of appearances and an identification of all human and social life with appearances. So he thinks our entire social life is is sort of um, – being mediated through appearances, what we want to appear like to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and he thinks that this is all an illusion. All of these appearances of happy people appearing to go about their life and happy people appearing to need the latest dishwasher and the latest appliance is all just appearances. And you need to pierce that veil through cognitive dissonance, right? And he's got... Uh, um, Oh, if I can find – he's got this beautiful phrase that he thinks to describe it. He says, disturbances with the lowliest and most ephemeral of oranges have eventually disrupted the order of the world, right? So this is the origin of culture jamming. If you guys remember like Adbusters magazine, right? Yeah, um, you do – doing street graffiti to wake people up, right? It's, it's a very um, – it's a very like – 80s and 90s sort of lefty culture jamming, anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, Naomi Klein, no logo way of thinking. Okay, Baudrillard's going to take that idea, and man, is he going to run with that. (laughs) So Baudrillard is going to say, you are swimming in a sea of signs and symbols and information. Now, keep in mind, this is back in like, I think in 1968, he starts writing. He writes the system of objects, and his big work on postmodernism, or his—I mean, there's a few—but his most famous one, Simulacra and Simulation, I believe, is 1981 or 1980. So yeah. he's writing back then. This is before Twitter, before Instagram, and at that time, he thinks this is before the cell phone. This is when car phones are still a thing, and he says, "Look, you're swimming in a sea of symbols and information and signs." You are saturated with symbols and signs and ideas and information. Um, you're floating in it, and you cannot escape that. It's just everywhere, always, all the time. Further, you've got technology which can just pump stuff out at massively fast rates, right? And we can just develop new things and new things and new things and new things and new things. And, new things. and we have rapidly going complexity. Rapidly building. And what Baudrillard says is what he thinks is that we lose touch with reality. Now, some people think, what do you mean we lose touch with reality? We have all this information telling us about the world. We have all this wonderful science telling us about the world. So, and here's briefly, what he believes say. in reality. Oh, he thinks reality exists. He just okay. thinks so, – so, so here's his view. Some people he don't. That's off, why I want you to specify. Okay. So, so – he believes that reality exists. And so he starts off with a Borges fable. And what he says is, he says, they've, they've created a map. 
And they keep making the map larger and more accurate and more detailed till eventually the map is so big and detailed and the model of reality that they've built is so big and detailed that it touches the world at every point. It's like if I build a life-size model of New York City, right? If I build a life-size model of New York City, I just really have a replica of New York City. And what he says is the replica replaces the actual reality in what people think of. He thinks you are you are living so much in a series of signs and symbols and representation that the only thing that tracks in your thinking is the signs and symbols and representations. So we have to look at this a little bit because – it's going to sound a little silly, but we have to have – because and, and the way I'm going to do this is we're going to have a little bit of fun with this because you're going to see the kind of playful deconstructionism of the early postmodernists here. So imagine that we have some wild strawberries growing in an ancient city, say in Rome or something, and me and James being ancient Romans um, are walking around in our togas, and we find the ancient strawberries, and we pick the strawberries, and there are some that are bigger than the others, and there are some that are smaller than the others, but they're all ripe, and some of them are a little more juicy, but me and James are eating the strawberries. Those strawberries are real me and james just look at the strawberries we just see the strawberries we have knowledge of the strawberries from walking around then we're eating strawberries we're gonna fast forward now to about oh 1960 and now we have strawberry factory which just grows strawberries all the time and it selectively breeds the strawberries so that we only get the biggest, juiciest, reddest, loveliest strawberries. And then we pick them, and then only the biggest, reddest, juiciest strawberries imaginable get sent out. So the average person sitting in their home only knows the flavor and the taste of the biggest, reddest, juiciest strawberries. So we have what you might call a productive copy of the strawberries, right? We're making the strawberries um, but they're still, in a sense, they're real strawberries. It's just strawberries on evolutionary steroids. But then, James and me, having our knowledge from ancient ancient Rome, because we're still alive, say, hey, we can make strawberry candies. So what do we do is we distill out of the strawberries the flavor of the strawberries, and we double the strength of it so it's way stronger than any strawberry that you could ever have wanted. It's way stronger than that. It's like twice as strong or 10 times as strong. And we're going to add sugar to it. And we're going to create a strawberry candy. Well, fast forward to the 1990s. And the Jolly Rancher Company says, hey, look, what we're going to do is we're going to do that same thing. But you know what? The strawberries are really expensive. So we're going to design a thing that tastes like the strawberries. And we're going to replace that wonderful natural cane sugar that you guys use. We're going to replace that with high fructose corn syrup. And then we're going to make the Jolly Rancher. So now the Jolly Rancher is the strawberry Jolly Rancher that tastes like the strawberry candy, that tastes like the wonderful 1960s selectively grown strawberries, which taste like the original strawberries. But whoa, wait. Someone's going to come along and they're going to make a soda. Jolly Rancher soda. Mm. Jolly Rancher strawberry soda, which tastes like the Jolly Rancher, which tastes like the candy, which tastes like the strawberry, which tastes like the original wild strawberries. But hold on a second. We're going to make... 7-Eleven comes along and says, hey, you know what would be really good? If we made a Slurpee of the Jolly Rancher strawberry soda. So eventually the, the Slurpee of the Jolly Rancher strawberry soda takes off. Man, and everyone just loves it. And everyone's drinking it. Eventually, you know what? I have a son. I have a kid. We're going to name him. Uh, we'll, we'll call him Michael. Jacques I thought Benjamin Michael. might be a good name for. I was going to go oh, Theodore, yeah, let's call him but Benjamin. whatever. We'll, 
we'll ben call. Jammin, actually. Yeah. yeah, let's call him that. Ed and uh, my son loves the 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 straw the Jolly Rancher strawberry Slurpee from Seven Eleven, and my son is out walking, drinking his strawberry Slurpee, and that's all he's ever had. I don't buy strawberries for my kid. Because there's COVID. So all he ever has is the strawberry Jolly Rancher soda Slurpee from 7-Eleven. And now as he's walking around one day, he looks over and he sees this odd bush of these like green and red things that are kind of growing. And they're kind of funny and they're kind of misshapen. And he goes, oh, those look like – that looks like the kind of like logo here of a strawberry. And he goes and he picks it and he goes, oh, it kind of tastes like my Slurpee. But the Slurpee's way better. The Slurpee is cold and refreshing, and oh, it's so sweet, and the flavor is so powerful. That's what a real strawberry tastes like. So now we've gotten to the point where we started with wild strawberries, and we ended up with a ice-cold, sugary, corn, fructose corn syrupy thing, which tastes like a cold soda, carbonated water fructose syrupy thing, which tastes like a candy fructose syrupy thing, which tastes like a strawberry sugary candy thing, which tastes like a selectively grown strawberry, which tastes like a wild. And we are completely divorced from the original strawberry. And now the flavor of strawberry is associated with the Slurpee, right? That's the thing. And the picture and of the people prefer the Slurpee to the real. That's right. The Slurpee is the thing that we care about. It's more real than real. It is a hyper-real thing. And then when we go further into the future to 20XD6, we get betrayed by Cypher, who's like, no, plug me back in. I just want to eat strawberries again. Because the movie The Matrix is exactly about this. Yeah. The Matrix is the signs and the symbols and the manufactured fake reality. The copies of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of the things that we prefer to the real thing. Which is why, yeah. you know, we, 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 we prefer women on Instagram who have Snapchat filters to make them look more female than female. And we love the bodybuilders that have so much muscle that they're more manly than manly. And the strawberries that are more strawberry than strawberry. And the, the President Trump, which is more American than American, he's almost a caricature of America because he hugs the American flag and serves McDonald's at the White House, which is more America than America. It's America on steroids. Yeah. Baudrillard's going to say, we live in a world where, where nothing is real. It, it doesn't exist. Nothing exists. And he pushes this and pushes this and pushes this and pushes this and says everything is not real. It's hyper real. It's not that it's fake. It's that it's, it's, it's what's real on the other side of reality. The real thing is the strawberry. The hyper-real thing is the Slurpee, is the strawberry Slurpee, which you'd much rather have than the original strawberry. It's way better, <laughs> which is why he keeps going and he pushes this. And eventually he says things like, the Iraq war did not take place. The Iraq war didn't happen. Now, something happened, but, but Baudrillard's going to say, look, um, what happened in Iraq was a purely symbolic thing. It had nothing to do with the facts on the ground. It was Saddam Hussein is a symbol of evil, and the United States is a symbol of good. And as at being that the United States is a a symbol of good, what do symbols of good do? Well, they 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 have to have a, a simulation of being good. They have to simulate it in some way. And what we're going to do is fight the bad guy, which is Saddam Hussein. But of course, 
uh, we're not going to have a real war. We're going to have a fake war. We're going to have a, a, a false war. It's going to be a simulation of a war. And we're going to film it. And you can watch it on TV every night. So George Bush, George H.W. Bush is going to get up lights, camera, action, I declare war. And all the media companies are going to film it. And we're going to watch stuff get shot. And, and the, the end is never in doubt. There's no struggle, really. It's just the, the powerful boot of the United States just crushing Saddam's army. And we all sit around and we all talk about how wonderful and good we are because we've defeated it. We've defeated the enemy that we set up for ourselves, that we created for ourselves so that we could act out the image of being good, so that we could we could be the simulation of a hero. So what he says is the Iraq war, as you think about it, as a <laughs> real war of a real struggle where there's a real end in doubt. And that's a a blood and gut struggle. He says that's been completely replaced by the symbolic nature of it. And so he says when you go and you you watch the war on TV and then you ask a soldier who was actually there what it's like, the actual soldier says, I didn't see any of that. I was locked away in a bunker dropping bombs that looked like a video game. I was piloting my F-15 fighter and it looks exactly like, you know, Pop Gun for the for the 8-bit Nintendo I I had no idea. I didn't see actually any people there when I was locked away in my bunker targeting, you know, Patriot missiles. I didn't see anybody or anything. He's per, per, he's he's hmm. there now. There's now Baudrillard says there's not real stuff. There's not that there's not real stuff going on on the ground. There is. It's just we don't know anything about that. The war yep. for us is the simulation, which it's is the on simulacra CNN. of a yeah mm-hmm. CNN yeah. Yeah, so the Iraq war didn't happen in the very same way that we could keep going with this. We could talk about how the Trump presidency didn't happen either. The Trump presidency was a simulation of a president. You know, we have a guy who's a reality TV show who's getting up, going back and forth and back and forth and going to various different things, talking about the various different things he's going to do. All the work's actually being done by Mitch McConnell. Trump's just signing things. And then... What does Trump do? He implements typical Republican policy. He doesn't take apart anything. He doesn't deconstruct the administrative state. He doesn't fire anybody. I mean, there's a few high-level replacements. So the Trump presidency, in a sense, didn't happen. It was a spectacle of a thing that happened. What happened was Trump going on CNN and CNN pretending to fact-check Trump. So Trump would go on CNN and pretend that he was fooling them. And then CNN was pretending to catch him, and we were all pretending to watch, pretending to care, pretending that things were really going on. Meanwhile... Back in Washington, what's actually going on is what? Mitch McConnell's just passing bills, and the typical same old Republican stuff that's always been going on is continuing to go on, right? So now so, we're getting to where MAGA is postmodernism. The key word here is kayfabe, right? I'm gunning ah, for the trad like wise, but what's a kayfabe? Pro wrestling. Kayfabe is, is, is the style of pro wrestling. That's when, this is why, well, Trump was, you know, he's in the WWF Hall of Fame, or maybe it's WWE now. I don't know if they changed the name of the Hall of Fame. But it's, 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 it's a performance in which the um, performers know it's fake. Most of the audience knows it fa- it's fake, but some of the audience doesn't know it's fake. But everybody just goes along with it and pretends that it's real for the sake of the theatrics. And so um, 
and kind of a key with kayfabe is that you kind of give winks and nudges or winks and nods. I mean, to the fact that it's fake, it's kind of like when Deadpool breaks a fourth wall and then he breaks a fourth wall, breaking a fourth wall, which is like a 16 dimensional wall or something like that's kind of a kayfabe flavored thing. And kayfabe actually eases this psychologically eases the dissonance of living in a hyper reality and in reality at the same time, Oh, okay. because somebody's now kind of winking through the camera and saying, it's okay. It's not real. We're all playing along. You play too, and now we're going to have some fun with it. And so, you know, you've got, you know, I mean, you go back and watch some of the old WWF. I think about this particular scene, which I've watched on YouTube a bunch of times in the past year with, with the Randy Macho Man Savage. Huge dude, bit strange, big beard, the glasses over the top. He's wearing purple. He's got this little tiny thing. He's doing like a magic trick. and He's all quirky and weird and twitchy. And then he's doing like this little magic trick and he's like, what I just wanted to tell you to Gene or whatever, to mean Gene, he's like, what I wanted to tell you is, and he pulls out this teeny tiny little half and half thing. The cream rises to the top. I'm the cream of the crop and the cream rises to the top. And then he opens it and just pours it out on the floor. It's the stupidest thing in the world. And you know, you know that he knows that the majority of the people watching this, and he's like acting like he's just shaking, like coked out. Right. And he's, He's doing this, and he knows the audience is playing along, and we're all just having fun. And in some weird way, it relieves the stress of living in this world where we also know we're being fed these ridiculous narratives that are as as as, you know that are hyper real, that are more real than real, Mm. and yet somehow profoundly unsatisfying. So what happens with Trump is he came in, and in a sense, he understood whether probably just intuitively that we're we do live in post-modernity now for whatever set of reasons and that if he breaks the fourth wall in the right way if he goes on cnn and doesn't just go on cnn and play the game but says fake news every single time fake news cnn no i won't talk to you uh he's breaking the fourth wall while also engaging in a particular kind of performance the thing is is looking back at trump i don't think a lot of it was a particular kind of performance i think he was actually calling them out and so then nobody's quite sure what of it is real and what of it is not real um and this actually led people to break a lot of that cognitive dissonance that you know the whole Mm. the whole uh very, what is Eric Weinstein calls it, the gated institutional narrative or whatever, you know, Curtis Yarvin, I mean, Menchus Mobug, we're not supposed to call him by his real name, calls it the cathedral. Uh, and that's where we're going to touch with it. Curtis Yarvin becomes the the link to the Pomo trad, which is another branch Here of we are. postmodern. And that's where we started with this, uh, you know, digression. And that's another branch of this very postmodern conservatism. And in fact, I think it's in... Curtis Yarvin calls his description, he's, he describes himself as being openly illiberal. He believes that liberalism has failed. Sometimes you'll hear these people call themselves post-liberal, that liberalism has failed. We're going to move on. And he refers to this as a dark enlightenment. I have only read a small portion of his extraordinarily prolific work. Um, he's a very, very smart person. I know him in person. I've spoken with him in person. And... Uh, you know, I don't want to discredit his thought. I think his analysis is really great. I just don't agree with post-liberalism. I just don't agree with illiberal. Uh, I don't agree with illiberal solutions to uh, the circumstances that we're in. I think we need a course correction back to liberalism, which may need to adjust in certain ways. But his thesis is actually that liberalism has never existed. Freedom, in fact, is a social construct. Um, and that 
I don't know if he holds this idea, so I don't want to ascribe it to him, but people in his orbit hold the idea that freedom and liberty are social constructs and that ultimately all there is is power. So you have this mm-hmm. very kind of overtly postmodern idea. So they call this a dark enlightenment, but I think it's a dark and wokenment uh, or a dark wokening, um, awakening because it, it, it's very Baudrillardian uh, postmodernism. It's and- very desert of the real. Uh, which is one of the terms that Baudrillard used for what was what's you know the experience of the hyperreal is that there's a desert of the real you. It's like you're in the desert searching for water, but what you're actually searching for in this case is authenticity. Uh, and there's this yeah. po- I called it pomotrad because there's this idea within it that that reality isn't really accessible. Everything is signs and images. Everything is uh, in a sense hyperreal. And yeah. so rather than leaning into a deconstruction, rather than leaning into queer theory or queering, they're saying, no, let's lean the other way into traditionalism, but we're going to performatively engage in traditionalism. There are no real traditions. Any tradition that gets established will be deconstructed by the deconstructionist. So we can't establish any real tradition. So we're just going to perform the traditions. We're not really traditionalists, but we're going to live our lives as though we are traditionalists. And there's this weird aching nostalgia, like Frederick Jameson describes when you read these people. Like they wish they could live the life of their grandparents. Uh, they wish that they could live this pre-digital, pre-deconstructive life and that they could lean into traditional values. And this isn't as much Curtis Yarvin at this point, as far as I can tell. He's he's a much different kind of thinker than this. But um, it's in that sense, it, you literally are creating hyper-real traditionalism. This is Baudrillardian postmodern fake traditionalism. So I've called them Pomotrad. Uh, as a kind of shorthand for that, because uh, I'm not a huge fan of the movement, which also tends to share in uh, its orientation. If I were to call it like a dark woke, um, I think it's identical, virtually identical to wokeness, except that it points in the opposite direction. It points yes. towards conservative traditional-ish values, but in the hyper-real form versus a kind of freewheeling anything-goes just tear apart the traditional, whatever the traditional is. So it's like, let's, let's kayfabe the traditions rather than let's deconstruct the traditions uh, or parody them. And so I think they're the same thing. And I put this on Twitter the other day. I said, you know, both the, 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 the neo reactionaries or what they're usually actually refer to themselves as and the woke say the same thing. Liberalism has failed. Liberalism leads inexorably to some bad conclusion. For the woke, they say it's fascism. For the neo-trads, they say it's communism. Or, sorry, the neo-reactionaries say it's communism. Liberalism has failed. The natural conclusion point of liberalism is a bad thing, fascism or communism, or in our present circumstance, both mixed together. And therefore, what we need to do is tear liberalism up by its roots, get back to basics, let's create a new movement where we have all the power and it'll sort it all out. And so <laughs> it's like, it's literally the same damn thing. Okay. And I I find it difficult to be kind of enthused about that in that it's just, it's, it's like, um, it's like wokeness, except that instead of leaning into racial identity per se, or leaning into especially queer identity. It's like woke, but instead of let's be queer, it's let's pretend that we're traditional. And when I say queer, remember, queer is almost performative gayness, right? It's that's what people used to call being flamboyant or a flamer. I don't know if you're allowed to say that word anymore. Uh-oh. Um, 
So it's it's performative. Queerness is a performative thing. It is a politics of parody around kind of hyper ostentatious uh, displays of homosexuality or gender nonconformity or something like that. It's not just being gender nonconforming. It's not just being somebody who isn't quite sure, you know, they're kind of in between and where they are, the hell they present themselves or just genuinely non-binary or whatever, or they're genuinely transsexual as it used to be the case. It's not that it is performing kind of intentionally ostentatious bending of gender or sexuality. And this is the same thing. It is performing the exact opposite thing, being bad. We're, 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 no, we want families, and we want structure and order. And of course, we all follow the Mike Pence rule. But of course, no, we really don't. Uh, you know, it's it's we're going to perform traditional gender roles. We're going to perform traditional societal roles. We're going to perform them. And there's still that aching desert of the real at the heart of it. And then again, the kind of more Foucauldian side is, well, your freedom, the idea that freedom is some birthright of all humans. You know, there's like this natural law uh, and natural rights. No, 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 no. That's all a social construct. All that there really is is power and those who know how to wield it and those who know how to grasp it. And whoever has that gets to dictate what the limits and, and the ideas of freedom are. Um, and so, so you yeah. are not against people deciding that they want to be monogamous and live a traditional life. And, uh, I don't care what re- people do. Revert That's back to makes, a division of labor. For most people. That, that, yeah. If it, that it's, works for you, do it. You're not talking about that. I actually that am form. relatively opposed to a lack of authenticity, though. Okay. Um, I get annoyed personally. Uh, you're welcome to do what you want. If you want to be a hipster of some sort or another and kind of go through pretend, pretentious motions in life, I guess that's good for you. But if I were advising somebody, you know, as a life philosophy, I would advise against that. I would advise people prove Baudrillard wrong by actually just going and getting in contact with the real, by getting to know themselves for who they really are without all these, you know, you don't have to live in, as, as Marcusa described a similar thing, you don't have to live in all these heteronymous interests. You can actually live within, you can you can actually interview yourself in a, in a meaningful way. You can actually go out in the world and interact in a meaningful way. You, you, can, you can turn off the screens if that's the simplest thing. You can turn off the news. You can just go out in the world and try to have authentic relationships and do authentic things. And I think that finding authenticity is more valuable. But if people want to be performative and they think that that's going to lead them there, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly care what people do. And if people are genuinely traditional, you know, good for them if it works. I, I have no problem with that either. There's just there's something that you're noticing that's uh, anti-liberalism that that's based on. It's openly anti-liberal. Okay. Uh, they in fact say it's that they, that liberalism has failed. They call themselves post-liberals. They describe themselves as illiberal. They look up, and I'm not exaggerating, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to stick this on any particular person. But having thousands of them having showed up, in, or maybe all thousand of them or whatever, show up in my mentions in Twitter recently, yeah. they're fans of of uh, low-key dictators like Franco of Spain and like Pinochet of Chile. Um, Most of them are not big fans of Hitler. Although what you have to worry about in situations like this, if a movement like this is gaining a lot of strength, is uh, Nassim Taleb's Taleb's rule of, of the most intolerant still plays. So if you end up with some seriously intolerant people who want to run through a course that already accepts illiberalism as the right answer... Uh, you have you are running a very serious risk. The point of liberalism is decentralization of power to try to minimize the possibility that a tyrant can rise through the ranks. 
And tyrants hmm. are very good at finding ways to rise through the ranks of illiberal systems. Um, but the, I mean, it's again, the mirroring between their language is just so stark. I'll give you a little bit more. You know, it could be the woke and the, and the neo-reactionary saying at the same time, you know, jinx on me a Coke. They're going to like pinky swear. It's like that, you know, woke and racist video that, that Ryan Long did that was hilarious and everybody memes all the time. Uh, but, you know, everything is artificial and terrible. This is a very Baudrillardian. I wrote this earlier, so I would remember it. Um, there is no meaningful way to live except in simulation and through detached irony. And the woke will say that detached irony and simulation has to be designed to deconstruct the traditional. And the neo-reactionaries would say that it has to s simulate the traditional in performative form uh, because that gives people a sense of stability. Uh, I don't think that this is great. If you want to be a traditionalist or if you want to explore it, you know, dive in and try to be authentic with it. Maybe it's not the life for you, but that's fine. I certainly live a somewhat postmodern life, but I feel like I do so seeking and valuing and honoring authenticity. So it's possible. Um, one other one that I wrote down was the, the woke and the neo-reactionaries would simultaneously say that, you know, like I mentioned, freedom is a social construct. It doesn't really exist. It was created by the powerful to keep. This is literally they're both ideologies say this it was created by the powerful to keep people content enough not to realize how miserable their lives actually are and how much under elite control they actually are hmm. and that goes so far as to include social norms this is where we really touch on the queer theory side the performativity side social norms in fact are a huge part of the problem unless they are the ones that we want to enforce upon people for some greater good and i just don't get down with that kind of thinking um i just don't accept it fortunately for uh those people who disagree with me return to reason rights and then vocal i want you to step up but i want to read this because there's a wordplay uh the gas lightenment or the gas lightenment yeah reality's broken people are now unable to process their immediate circumstances ted wheeler from Portland, was reelected. Our map on reality is social media legacy news. Twitter is literally terraforming reality. I've been getting more and more disillusioned with Twitter. Um, oh, yeah. You've got to be really careful with that. You, um, what did I say on the 6th of January, the 7th of January? I got made fun of yesterday for having said it. Then I'll get made fun of again for it is that you don't know what happened at the Capitol on the 6th. Uh, oh, you don't oh, know what happened. Oh, oh. This is go. perfect to illustrate Baudrillard. Baudrillard's going to love – Baudrillard would have had a field day with this. Baudrillard would have oh, said yeah. you had a guy who was a hyper-real president. I mean, I just sent you a link in the chat. I of, can't uh, find it. Uh, I, uh, I'll the, pull it up. The, if you could send it on Twitter when you have a second, but but go go to your point. Uh, it's it's Donald Trump pretending – making fun of being presidential. Uh I can I, I can try and play it here, but but Trump makes wait, wait, fun wait. of being presidential. Can you send it to me on Twitter, and then I'll try to figure out how to get it onto our news feed uh, for everybody to see? Because you you've draw you've mentioned this several times before. It's in yeah. the Skype chat. I can't yeah. open the Skype I, chat for some reason. It's all broken. I just sent it via Twitter. Thank okay. you. I was going to do it, it too, but we're now figured out. But no, this is the thing. Um, this is one of the things that I used to bring up, in fact, that Trump was postmodern. Uh, but he's not he's not neo reactionary though. Right? No. Okay, so so hold on. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have some Baudrillard and postmodernism now. So what Baudrillard is gonna say this? is Baudrillard is gonna say, look. Do you know how to play it? Uh, one second. Monsieur Boyce Monsieur. See if you can play Trump. Oh, I can't. 
There's something broken with the, uh, I can't do it. Even in the future, nothing works. Yeah. <laughs> so what Trump does is there's a video. We'll we'll try and find it. We can get it. We could link it later in the description below. I'll, I'll link it in the uh, description and in the chat feed. Yep, in the chat. Right. And so Trump gets up and he says, I could be presidential. I could get up and I could say, hello, my fellow Americans. But you'd be bored with it. You'd be bored. That's Trump clowning presidentialism, right? He's being more president. You don't want a president. You want somebody who's more than a president. You want a guy who's going here, there, everywhere, who's on TV all the time, who's consistently giving you his opinion, who's weighing in on absolutely everything, who's on Twitter every morning, setting the narrative and deciding what's what. You're more the president than the president. You're not only are you the president, but you're in charge of the social conversation you are controlling the discourse. So you have a man who lost an election but still thinks he's president, says Baudrillard. And Baudrillard's going to say, look, this guy who's not president is telling a bunch of people who aren't going to start an insurrection to go to a capital where they can pretend to have an insurrection. Then they're going to go in and not take anything over. They're going to lose. They're going to leave, right? He says, so you have a fake president leading a fake rebellion to a fake coup where everyone's pretending like they're going to take over, and then when they get in, they're going to stay between the velvet ropes, and then they're going to leave. And what Baudrillard's going to say is that the people who died and the violence that occurred that day was was perpetrated by a bunch of people who didn't realize that everything was fake. Those are the people who don't know that wrestling isn't real. Yeah, those are the people Baud- who got really mad back in the day when, I forget which two wrestlers, but they were enemies on the ring, ended up getting pulled over for drunk driving or speeding or something like this. And the, the, the scandal wasn't that these guys had been pulled over for drunk driving. It was that they were hanging out together because they're supposed to be enemies in the ring. That's right. That's right. So all the people that are showing up there are, are um, Trump is pretending that he won the election. The people are pretending to believe him. And then they're pretending to hold an insurrection because the populist movement is also pretend. This is actually the copy of the copy of a populist movement. See, the original populist movements back in the 20s, which might have led to um, 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 various insurrections in various states and the you know, the attempting to create new parties, were replaced by a fake populism of Ross Perot who said – you know, everything is just that simple and had pie charts and was running an independent candidacy as a billionaire. So what he did is he stepped in as a businessman and saw the need for populism and sought to supply that need in a capitalist way, being Ross Perot and funding his own campaign as a billionaire. So you had fake populism, and Trump is the copy of the fake populism. So you have a hyper-real president doing hyper-real populism at a hyper-real uh, protest, and then they're going to march down with their hyper-real protest and go – hold a hyper-real coup of the absurd where they go in, get into the seat of power, take a knee, and then a man with uh, uh, dressed as a shaman with big horns on his head is going to stand in the seat of power and say, hey, dude, what's going on, man? This is all theater. Okay. And and hold on a second, but we're going to analyze something because people are going to say, well, what, what do you mean four people died? Well, Baudrillard is going to say, yeah, something happened there on the ground, and that was that some of the people didn't know it wasn't real. And yeah. so, I mean, the woman who was shot, and I don't want to say anything poor about her because I, uh, her life is precious, but you kind of have to wonder what's going on when there's a guy there with a gun saying, don't come in. And this woman was, I believe she was in the Air Force. She's not unaware of how weapons work. He's pointing a gun at her telling, stop or I'll shoot, and she continues to climb through. 
It's like she didn't think anything could happen to her or she didn't know or didn't think anyone would really do something. And Baudrillard is going to say that these people who who think they can just do anything and that there's no consequences, that everything just keeps going, are living life as though it were a video game. They're treating this simulation as it's, it's awareness of a simulation, or they think everything's just a simulation. So everything that's going on at the Capitol that day, it's not that it wasn't dangerous, and it's not that there wasn't a riot, and it's not that there wasn't violence. He doesn't think that. What he thinks is that all the thing that people were self-describing themselves as doing that day wasn't real. Trump wasn't really president. The vote wasn't really in doubt. The populist revolt wasn't really a populist revolt. It was people LARPing as a populist revolt. The protest wasn't really a protest. It was LARPing as a protest. And the coup wasn't really a coup. It was LARPing as a a coup. That's why nobody showed up with a plan, because there are no plans, because the coup is not real. The coup is fake. Everything about it is fake. The whole thing is an enormous self-referential spectacle. It's like standing in a house of mirrors and seeing a reflection that's been bounced off 40 different mirrors and then it's looking back at you, right? (laughs) This is what he thinks. He thinks it's all fake, right? Now, um, so I'll, now, but, and of course, we could keep going with this. We could say, well, the Biden inauguration didn't happen either. Yeah, that's why I want to ask, because it seems like the... uh, it seems like that way of playing has stained everything and that the Biden administration is operating oh. in the shadow of the hypo real, but they have a, a glaze of sincerity and compassion and they're using uh, like these overtures of caring and loving. And it's got a different flavor, which makes it even more cringe. In yeah, a way they've got their own they've made their own like slurpee out of it if you will to follow the earlier metaphor and as a matter of fact the part that the vocal didn't go into is the aspect of like cnn and the way that the news media then handled this event from the very get-go right <laughs> so their narrative just took over everything and that's where i was saying you don't know what's happening this happened on social media but it started to happen from major outlets later we find out that cnn was actually paying the guy that's like going in there agitating and pushing things and, and making things go forward. He ends up paying this guy a lot of money to go collect footage of this. And so why were they doing that? So that they could then publish selective footage to push a different narrative about what was going on, a completely different pseudo reality of what was going on. Um, and so the, the, what we're actually kind of in a sense seeing almost as a bifurcation or a fracturing of that, of that hyper real, um, which makes things quite contentious. Uh, there's, but there's, to keep going, keep going. You could take that and say, well, that didn't happen. Well, what about the inauguration? Well, the inauguration didn't happen real. I'm not saying Biden's not president. He clearly is. He was absolutely inaugurated. It's not that Biden being, inaugur- Biden being inaugurated didn't happen. It's that the inauguration didn't happen. See, the inauguration was not Trump. Be- was not Biden becoming president in the formal legal sense. The inauguration is the pilot episode of season one of the Biden administration. And of course, we have a link that I just sent to you via Twitter, which is which is, uh, calls, what's next for the breakout stars of the inauguration? Because the inauguration has breakout stars, much like, you know, Breaking Bad or the latest Marvel movie has breakout stars. And they, have, of course, have modeling contracts. And why wouldn't they? Because this is season one. Now, unlike seasons one through four of the Trump administration, where we had the wonderful breakout star, Sean Spicer, we had the breakout star of Anthony Scaramucci, who was brought in merely as an extra, but had a scene-stealing performance, and then was brought back as recurring character throughout seasons one through four of the Trump administration, right up to the season finale of the Trump administration on January 6th, which made way for the new season of Biden. 
weekend at Biden's four, right? Like this is this is what's going on, right? The whole thing is a, a spectacle of insincerity, of kind of like, like Kamala's laugh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, people are pretending that Biden's the president right now, just like Trump wasn't the president. Mitch McConnell was actually the president running the show. Biden's not the president either. I mean, people would say he's in cognitive decline. But even if he wasn't in cognitive decline, Biden's not the one in charge. Biden's listening to all the advisors who are telling him what to bleak from their view on the ground. So Biden is getting what Baudrillard would call a simulacrum of what the people believe, and then he's putting out a simulacrum of what he thinks they want. And then the, the administration is going to implement what they think that Biden thinks that the people want, and everything is completely insincere. We, this, is, this is all kayfabe, not serious. This is pro-wrestling, right? Like this is, this is what – yeah, it's like it's like when it's I mean I mean Joe Biden saying we're going to end COVID nineteen is the is is I mean I mean by my cure Oh yeah, COVID nineteen on the twentieth of May. Oh yeah, I'm gonna team up with Moderna and Pfizer. Oh yeah. The cream of the crop of the vaccines. Oh yeah, we're gonna take you out. Yeah. <laughs> like that's he might as well have done that because that's pretty much what he's doing. So, of course uh, Right, like this is this is what Baudrillard thinks now. I mean, we There's saw the here. We saw that literally. It went viral on Twitter yesterday and is going viral still on Twitter today. Though I think it was from earlier in the month, where the uh, the the public health official ends up on CNN talking to Chris Cuomo, and it was like, people, we are opening to a hundred percent. People will realize they can have their freedom without the vaccine unless we act very quickly to send out a, mer- a, n- a narrative message to, to give them the carrot that they need the vaccine to have their freedom. They're going to figure it out. We're in a very narrow window, you know. So we see through this now. All of a sudden, this is this is talking. You know, Chris Chris Cuomo at this point becomes Mean Gene from back in the day, and it's like, you know, we've got now we've got the public health lady, and she's like. Yeah, what we're going to do, you know, what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to tell them they need the vaccine. We're going to tell them they need the vaccine and their freedoms on the other side of the vaccine. And we're going to tell them. And then, you know, you've got over here like, uh, I don't know, pick your favorite right wing commentator. You know, I don't know, maybe like Steve Bannon or something Let's popping up and he's like or Glenn Beck or something. And they're like, you know, you know, th- th- this is the beginning of fascism. We're not going to let you do it, brother. You know, and the whole there's a there's a degree to where that's real enough where it's like, wait a minute. And then there's a degree to where um, that's how it feels to people. That's their lived experience, if you will, of what's actually going on. But meanwhile, real things are going on. Real people are getting the vaccine. Some of them are having great outcomes out of this some of them are having scary as shit outcomes out of this Hmm. real things are actually happening real governments are attempting to try to tie freedoms to the vaccine real people are realizing wait a minute (laughs) like it's been fine for a while like what's the big deal uh so i mean ron DeSantis could pretty much announce his presidency like this like i mean he could just get up and and he could just play this and walk out and have this be his response to the Biden administration. It could just go like this. It's kind of and a he thing. He could just walk out. You lost your job? Wait, wait, hold on. Turn that off. I'm going to get a copyright strike. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll lose your monetization. Right, right. But this is the whole thing. Now, there's something here that we have to we have to dig into and grab onto that I think 
okay. that people miss. Because when I've, whenever I mean, James and I have been saying for quite a while that we are living in postmodernism, we are in postmodernity. Yeah. There's two things that are going on here, which I wanna, which I wanna talk about. One is um, there is the postmodernists giving a description of postmodernity, and then there are the ideas that they make which accelerate it. Baudrillard is highly, highly pessimistic about this. He doesn't like this, but he accepts it, and he wants to try and get a way out. He actually says at one point, he says that between uh, the end of the Gulf War and nine, he says through the 90s, he says, nothing happened. Events went on strike. They declared that they would not occur. And then after 2011, that it's very interesting time for people because this is the first time in nearly a decade that something happened, right? Because everything is right. This is how we think. So he's thinking he's writing about this in the 90s. Can you imagine him looking around today, right? Like so, what he would say, right? So Baudrillard is describing what he sees as postmodernity, and what he thinks is that what is real and authentic is just clinging on as vestiges, right? In the same way that what's left of of me and James eating our strawberries in ancient Rome, what's left is just the simulacrum of a strawberry in the form of the flavor of the simulacrum of the flavor of the strawberry in its hyper real form in the Slurpee and the image of this, the simulacrum image of the strawberry where it's more red than red can possibly be in a strawberry and it's perfectly colored and it's, 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 it's on the label that labels it as a strawberry Slurpee, right? <clears throat> he thinks that the real is just holding on. It's rotted away. It's like it's like I built a model of New York City and then we abandoned New York and just lived in the model in the life-size replica of New York City. Or if like if I built the life-size replica of my own house and I move next door into the life-size replica of my house and then my old house begins to tremble down and fall away. This is what what Baudrillard thinks, right? So you have all of these people who are because Baudrillard's a Marxist, right? Or he starts out as a Marxist and he. He eventually, because he's dealing so much with semiotics and with signs and with symbols and with language, that what he thinks is the move that he makes to go from Marxism to postmodernism is to recognize that he says, look, we have the use use value of a thing and we have the exchange value of a thing. And he says, well, we also have the symbolic value of the thing. And then he, he comes to the point where he says, the all of the trades and purchases and decisions are being made – on the basis of the symbolic nature of the thing. So all of the foods I eat, I eat I don't eat hot dogs and hamburgers and pizza because I'm hungry. I eat them because I'm an American. Right? That's why that's the level of decision making. So it's all being made, Baudrillard thinks, and that's where he kind of leaves Marxism behind. He drops it and he says, This is no good anymore. And that's when he gets into the most pessimistic cynical philosopher there probably is because he thinks it's gone and he thinks we need to have a new theory of politics and his work becomes more interest strange not interesting and iconoclastic as he gets older right and he kind of leaves his post not doesn't leave his postmodern phase but he goes kind of through it to a post-truth phase where it's like hmm. what's true is not it's not that things are not are false it's that they're more true than true it's that they're more real than real. It's, the truthiness. You know, 
Yeah, yeah, it's beyond truth. It's on the other side of truth, right? So, but he longs for the authentic, real engagement, right? That's what he wants to have, but he can't have it. It's gone, and so he despairs of this, right? Okay, so Foucault and Derrida, on the other hand, are doing something different. Derrida and Foucault are actually synthesizing and creating the ideas which lead us further and further and further into the postmodern condition, where Baudrillard thinks we're losing everything purely because of of signs and symbols and technology, Foucault is saying, ah, but it's also power. And then Derrida is saying, yeah, and it's also how language works. There's no metaphysical foundations for it. And all of a sudden, you add those three things together, and it just accelerates everything, right? So by the time Baudrillard writes in 1981, Derrida's already taken off. Foucault has already taken off. These men are stars in their fields, particularly in France where he's writing. And, and he's looking at all this and saying, like, it's all hopelessly despair, right? Now, Almost all of this work is done from a left-wing perspective, right? Um, these are all guys who were nominally Marxist or Marx-ish at some point in the early portion of their careers who have gone through Marxism now and are doing something else, right? They're all part of the Paris uprising in 1968, right? Foucault was a part of it. He was very famously throwing rocks um, with his students at the Sorbonne in Paris while making sure not to scratch his impeccable black suit, which... Baudrillard would have just loved the image of that, the hyper-real simulation of throwing rocks at police, right? The performative doing of it. Um, and and Derrida is also a part of it, and Baudrillard's a part of these uprisings in 1968, but by the time 1980 rolls around, he despairs. Now, here's where the conservatives hit, okay? That Baudrillardian analysis has a has streaking through the center of it. It's all very leftist, very anti-capitalist, but streaking through the center of it is what? It's this conservative goal to return to the past that is better, that is more authentic. There's a better, more authentic past. And that's where they get purchased with the trad pomos. The second way that Baudrillard does is that a Baudrillardian deconstruction can can deconstruct a lot of the things they don't like. So, for example, what they could point out is they could say, "Look, the poet Philip Larkin declared that sex did not was not invented. Sexual intercourse was not invented until 1963, right? Because prior to that, we had something else. This is we have now birth control pills. We have recreational sex coming up in the 60s, but before that, we didn't have that. So, sexual intercourse as a casual phenomenon disconnected from family was not invented until 1963, right? This kind that kind of analysis is going to be really useful because they're going to look at the trans moment that's currently occurring and they're going to say, look, back in ancient Rome and me and James are picking the strawberry, we see women. And they're just women. And then we fast forward to the 1960s and all of a sudden we have women, but they're wearing makeup. They have makeup and, and their control. hair is done. And they're on birth. Wait, wait a second. Hold on. She's having makeup. Her skin is better than skin. It's more real than skin. Her hair is prettier than real hair. Then wait a second. She's on birth control. So now we're having a sexual act, which is not a reproductive act. So is it really a sexual act? And then what we're going to do is we're going to keep pushing that till we go to breast implants and chin implants and more facial feminization. And then we're going to take a woman who's... So finally, you come up in, 19, in, in the 1900s, right? 
of the 1960s with the makeup and the hair and everything else. And then you're going to move forward to the 1980s where you're going to have breast implants. So now you have the makeup and the hair and the breast implants. Then you're going to move into the 90s where you have the makeup, the hair, the breast implants, and the Photoshop. And then you're going to move forward to the, you have the makeup, the hair, the breast implants, the butt implants. Everything is shaved perfectly. You're going to have a labiaplasty. And then you're also going to, on top of that, have a Photoshop. And then you're going to, on top of that, have a feminization filter via Twitter and Instagram, which is going to give you a nice glow, which is filmed from every conceivably perfect angle. And they're going to say, look... It's a simulacrum of femininity. And then you're going to have the trans movement. And what are they doing when they're trying to transition from male to female? The target they're aiming for is the Instagram version of the simulacrum of femininity. And then around that, they're going to form an identity. So it's a hyper-real identity that's not even based on anything that really exists. They took all the stuff that was added. They took the hyper-real picture of what femininity is, abstracted that out. And then said, "That's the new thing we're aiming for, which creates itself." And it's more. A new it's more aesthetic. woman than woman. It's more to become right. a woman is more important than to merely be made as a woman through the womb. That's yeah. another woman. That's yeah, the typical mm-hmm. porn star actress is the strawberry slurpee of women, right? That's what we have, and now we're going to take the the trans thing, which is going to take the strawberry slurpee of females and the blueberry slurpee of males, and it's going to mix them together. And that thing is going to form an entirely new. And what they're going to say is the trads are going to say, "Look at this. None of this is real. It's all fake. It's all hyper reality. None of it actually exists." And boy, doesn't that just strike a chord as being like, you know what? A lot of like RuPaul's Drag Race is doing what when they say. Uh, it's James Charles calling everybody sister, right? It's a guy calling everybody sister. It's RuPaul's Drag Race where where to be a woman is like this – where the drag queens are doing what? They're taking all the stuff that we associate with femininity, which is really just exaggerated femininity, which is really just hyper-real femininity, and they're applying that to males and abstracting out the males' maleness of it. So the biology is left completely out. The real is gone. What matters is the image and so to the trad pomo, that Baudrillardian analysis where they say um, all the things that they don't like are fake. Pornography is fake. You have fake women who are pretending to have sex with, with men who are all pretending to enjoy it so that they can pretend that the camera's not there so that we can watch and pretend to get sexually excited so that we can pretend to be having sex by ourselves as we watch the computer screen. And then we can all pretend that this is normal so that we can pretend that we're in a relationship via OnlyFans. <laughs> right? And the trend publishers are going to look at this and say it's all fake. It's all a huge spectacle. And, and what happens when you... Uh, adopt that analysis is that reality is running away as vestiges and it's it's just knock 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 on the door it's knocking on the door of a postmodernist anti-realist epistemology right yes so somebody in the chat is saying they might be right at a fundamental level but they're not understanding why they're pomo trads they accept that reality is lost not uh, they're not just saying, oh, wow, we live in a world where the hyper-real is what we're stuck with. And so they're not saying we should go back to where that wasn't the case. They're saying that that is the actual case. Reality has been lost. So let's create a new non-reality that leans into performative traditionalism. Uh, so somebody in the chat a little while ago with a super chat asked specifically if I'd comment on formal formalism within. And this is the idea that we're going to you know, actually formalize Things as they are. Uh, to, I'm not 
especially in politics, if we're going to give somebody, you know, a role that's going to be described as what they are, and they actually have to be what they are. Um, so if you have a president presiding, the president presides, you don't have somebody behind the scenes that's actually doing all of, you know, pulling the puppet strings or whatever else, and that way everything becomes kind of more authentic. But the problem is, mm-hmm. and maybe that is the point that they think that they're heading toward, but what you see in their writing is this this kind of belief that reality has escaped us, that reality has been deconstructed. And so what matters is the socially constructed reality through the application of power that we're going to then occupy. In fact, liberalism never existed. Liberalism is never real. Uh, freedom is, is a social construct of who's applying power and how it is. So what they're saying is, well, if we, we if we have to live in a hyper-real, let's produce a hyper-real based on traditional values rather than turning everything upside down. In other okay. words, let's create a hyper-real where everything's turned upside right versus a hyper-real where everything's turned upside down. And the problem for me is you're still living in hyper-reality. You're still choosing Bingo. hyper-reality. So Wait, that's why I, I say that they're not right. They're, in a sense, more right, but... When yeah. you are trying to enforce a hyper-reality, you are going to have to well, – another word for that is the pseudo-reality. That pseudo-reality is still detached from reality. It still has a separate paralogic or paralogy, as Lyotard described it, if we want to talk about another postmodern philosopher. Now, paralogy is still just legitimation by consensus. It's still yeah. just – a fake logic where nobody has access to the authentic real. So formalism for me uh, looks like a way to try to create a, again, it's called formalism, formal structure that um, isn't going to be deconstructed, but it's only going to be deconstructed because there's going to be a consensus that we don't deconstruct that thing. Uh, And does that work or not? You know, I don't know. Um, what it tends to, as I would warn in a practical sense, is that the intolerant will will game that system as they game most systems, unless it's extremely robust against those kinds of abuses, which it probably is not, especially since you already see people who are, are in that movement talking positively about, you know, dictators like, fasc- like Franco and like Pinochet. Uh, it's probably not going to be as resistant to that as, as they hope. Um, but it might be so, inherently more stable because it is built on a founding something rather than deconstructing. Well, here's, something. here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. When <clears throat> it it's 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 tempting to believe that that's right. It's tempting to say that hey, this would be inherently more stable. But that misses the understanding of it because it's a hyper-real simulation of traditionalism, which is just going to get keeping copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and distorted till the original traditionalism is lost. You might say that it's already lost. Right? Which is why I that, say that the answer to this is not to create another hyperreal with a with a correct side up pyramid, but rather to break from the entire nonsense and start seeking the authentic in an, in a tr- like in an authentic yes, way. Yes, yes. The authenticity right. is the kryptonite to all of this postmodern nonsense. And if you read these right. these neo Marxist philosophers where they're talking about alienation, if you in the constant alienated state, you can even read Marx about the alienation of the worker. If you read the postmodernists, it's just alienation taken up to like level ninety nine. Uh, limit break alienation and you know to the point where we no longer have reality we just have you know rot literally budger described it as rotting strips and vestiges of reality attached at weird places to the to the hyper real what people are craving and what what that kayfabe of of trump's kind of more performative aspects of his his maga stuff was tapping into is there there 
aching for either authenticity or at least something that eases the cognitive dissonance and steps out of the complexity and at least winks and says, you know, at least we at least if we're going to have to pretend we're going to we're going to know we're pretending and have fun. We're going to know that there is no spoon. But what people really are aching for most is to figure out how to break out of the matrix, if you will, entirely to experience the authentic as the authentic actually is. Um, but the yeah. problem is, is it's very scary. And then you live in a deconstructive situation. This was a rule as far as my Twitter behavior that I learned very early on, which is that you should never put on Twitter or social media in general, anything, especially if you have a fairly large account, you should never put anything on social media you're not ready to see made fun of. So what you actually have to do, if you wanted to know like what's my secret anyway, what you actually have to do is you have to be willing to have a amount of detached irony about the thing you think is yourself when that thing goes online. Offline, you know, we used to call it having a good sense of humor or taking things, you know, in stride or whatever. Mm -hmm. You still have to be able to do that. But it, when you that has to be the primary characteristic of of how you interact with that, which you put online. I have to be ready for this video to be chopped up and, and made to look ridiculous. I have to Our be ready for was. you. Well, I mean, the, was it one of yeah, the ones they, that you did, you know, you, you took vocal and I, and you put like pro wrestling on us literally. Right. I have to yeah. not just see that, but I have to embrace it. I have to be like, yes, that's where I saw in the chat at the very beginning. You know, James probably gives good head. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, of course. You have to be just ready to do that at all times <laughs> to interact with a pure. Yeah. I, I would actually say that the, that the digital space, the social media environment is more or less a purely deconstructive space. All it does is take apart. And so what you have to do is start looking for ways to build outside of that space. And yeah. formalism isn't going to do it if we're going to talk about this neo-reactionary or dark awakening or dark enlightenment or counter enlightenment, whatever they want to call it. It's not going to do it because that's a thing that can just get taken apart. It's okay. a thing that takes itself seriously in a way that doesn't work. Or in, in, in a field within that environment, within the uh, social media environment. Yeah, I this is, I mean... I'm we not a social media up. cynic, though. I think that there's ways to interact with it that are, that are more stable and less stable. If you project your character um, as some sort of stable uh, thread that people trust or distrust or like or dislike, and then you grow, uh, you grow bonds, there's a cool word for it. Like there's a simulated relationship that you have with your audience that people talk about on uh, specifically within, I guess, OnlyFans and then on YouTube. Like there's this whole thing that actually does have traction. There is something real going on there. There is, is something hyper real. There. I don't know if it's hyper real. I mean, I, I I am replicated infinitely. You know, I look at my metrics on YouTube. People are watching millions of minutes of me uh, a, a month. You know, so I'm multiplying my life by, you know, millions fold. Like my life is being is that, multiplied. So you're aging really well under the circumstances. I, I am. I know. It's all that. Well, it affords so me all of this uh, hyper real college time dilation energy. of hyper reality. Something that, that I think James talked about the detached irony. Um, there's a book, the guys who wrote the rebel cell, which is a book I bang on about all the time, which everyone should read also wrote a book called the authenticity hoax. And one of the, the early things that the Marxists were doing when they were talking about alienation is they were saying that man is alienated from blah, 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 blah. But their whole alienation was you're, you're alienated if you're not a Marxist, right? Unless you're living in a Marxist utopia, you're alienated, right? That's how they define their alienation. So they, they don't, define democracy too. 
Yeah, right. Everything is just, just they're all, on it's that just, level. There's something weird about all these really bookish people talking about other people who actually do manual labor being uh, alienated from their work. It's like they're the ones yeah. who are alienated and projecting that everywhere. It just seems like it's a Iron pattern. law of woke projection. Projection. And what Potter does is he talks about how um, the, the search for authenticity and authentic experiences is the search for a thing that doesn't exist in a way. And I think having looking back on his book now, I think what he's getting at is that the there's this sort of manufactured authentic, which is a hyper real authenticity, right? <laughs> and this is part of what Baudrillard is on about. Is he That's thinks the that problem. That's why people can't, can't find it. Because he thinks you can't you cannot, Baudrillard mm. thinks. Baudrillard thinks like you're in a you're in so many mirrors that you don't know what's actually your reflection anymore. There's so much smoke and mirrors you can't even see yourself. Oh, and and because because you can't even see yourself anymore, um, and you can't see reality, there is no anchor for you. Mm-hmm. So when you say I want to grab onto authenticity, Baudrillard says, "What are you going to grab?" And Outrage. What Potter is Reaction. pointing out. What Lived Potter experience. Point, mm-hmm. Yeah. What Potter Oppression. is going to point out is he he says. He says, the thing that people are trying to sell you when they tell you to seek authenticity, and he was writing this kind of in, I think, 2011, 2012-ish when he was writing, is is there's all these this this kind of search for, like, well, I want to go to a foreign country and get something real. But what you <laughs> actually want, what you're actually chasing there is, so so what what is the tourism company going to do? They're going to commodify it and sell it to you as a hyper-real experience. Right? And then when you yeah. get back home, People the social talk. justice warrior is going to deconstruct it because it is authentic and you're not allowed to have that authenticity. Right. It's, it's and, the social justice warriors, and the social justice warriors – This is killed yeah, ahead, this is, this is, this is the social justice warriors have done something that's even it's even a little bit more strange, perhaps, than that is that is that they've redefined authenticity in terms of critical consciousness, so that because they are postmodern, because the social justice elements are postmodern and they've defined authenticity and what's real in terms of critical consciousness, people are thinking that the only way that they can be authentic is to be critically conscious yeah. and then to dig. They have to abide more of the postmodernism, which is more yeah. of the smoke and mirrors, which makes them evaporate even more into an abstracted out identity, yeah. which isn't even them. Well, and, so, yeah. Yeah. So hold on, yeah. just wait, wait. There's, there's, I got it. There's one more. I got the ball on the team. I'm gonna smash it now. So, the <laughs> Baudrillard is doing a diagnosis of this, and he's <laughs> got something. But his problem is that he just accepts it. He's Baudrillard has accepted it and says we need to build our politics around this permanent hyper reality. And part of that is engaging in the detached irony, which everyone pulls onto themselves because everything has to be detached irony because nothing can mean anything because it all has to be destroyed, right? Why? Because nobody knows what's real, right? Yeah. In in the Baudrillardian sense, right? And because we don't know what's real. We certainly have no idea what's true, yeah. um, and and you end up with a problem. And 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 so, Baudrillard is uh, is is accept is the way for the Pomotrads to hop on the postmodern train and strike back, right? The problem is, but in doing so, 
they risk the danger of do, of making the same mistake that the left made, which is to accept everything that was going on. When Foucault and Derrida and Baudrillard were writing, the writing they're not writing as literary theorists. The writing is continental philosophers, and so they're quite rightly should be seen as writing as continental philosophy. And if you know anything about continental philosophers, they're always reaching and grasping and chasing the next thing and trying to grab the thing that's just out of reach. They're not like the analytic – it's not like reading John Searle where everything is clearly laid out, right? And if you read Simulacra and Simulation, like the opening lines to the book are just like I'll, – I'll read them so you can you can get a, a feel for what it it might – it might be right to 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 read some Baudrillard, so that you can get a, get a hold of it, just so you can you can feel what continental philosophy is like. Um, his opening feel. is the simulacrum never what hides the truth. The truth hides the fact that there is none. The simulacrum is true. If we are once able to view the Borjas fable in which the cartographers of the empire drop a map so detailed it covers the territory exactly. As the most beautiful allegory of the simulation, this fable has now come full circle for us and possesses nothing but the discreet charm of second-order simulacra. Today, abstraction is no longer that of the map, the mirror, or the concept. Simulation is no longer that of a territory, a referential thing, or a substance. It's the generation by models of a real without a given origin or reality, a hyper-real. In the same way that my strawberry soda doesn't refer to the strawberries, it refers back to the thing which refers back to the thing. We're now not referring – our hyper-reality doesn't refer back to anything that exists, right? That's the opening of the book. He doesn't set it up. He doesn't start off that, and he just drops you into it, right? The continental philosophers, their ideas need to be chipped down and refined carefully. In France, this is what it – happened a lot of it and as a result nobody in france is a deridian or a Foucauldian anymore <laughs> and right they don't do that because they know how to handle continental philosophy <laughs> but when the activists picked up the continental philosophy they didn't do any of that they just said what can we use here that's politically useful that's right that's the big point there is the activists that we called the applied postmodernists picked these tools up these diagnoses up and said how do we use this to push the world the direction we want to go the activists who picked that up in the 80s and 90s going forward, how do we make use of this where it's useful and where it's not? We'll just pretend they didn't say anything where they said, oh, this is dangerous or this is bad. We just will pretend they didn't say that. Um, it's not really a great thing to kind of lean into. It's, you know, there's too much uh, temptation there to start to believe that your the, 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 the ends will justify the means. Uh, Can I pivot yeah. this conversation because because uh, i have a pivot oh pivot it up sam harris this is Wait, a very kill the Buddha. are you making up yeah, with sam, sam harris? harris making out no this waking is this up, is waking up not making up he has not followed me back on twitter and i have not followed him back on twitter dun 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 because that's the mark of a whatever it is relationship on only fans like sam and i don't have an only fans relationship yet um no, I read that book and I was like, Sam's got to kill the Buddha. And it's the same kind of phenomenon as what Woke was talking about a second ago. This is definitely a, you've got to kill the Buddha with, the, with the, the hyper real, the false authenticity. This is such a huge idea that people can't find the authentic, which is all around them all the time because they're looking for the hyper authentic and you it's not there. So, that you know, there's the old Zen Cohen, which is if you meet the Buddha upon the road, kill him. And I interpret that to mean, after much 
contemplation of it myself. I interpret that to mean that if you think you're enlightened, you should probably stop thinking that because you're certainly not. Or that if you are pursuing enlightenment for itself, which is why I hold up this book, which is unintentionally ironic in that way. Um, if you're pursuing enlightenment for itself, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, so with this pursuit of the authentic, I used to meditate a lot, like Sam Harris used to meditate a lot, or maybe he still does meditate a lot. And uh, the, the instruction... Like he meditates a lot. Yeah, that's true. And he doesn't use a lot of big words, but he uses a lot of small, hard words uh, precisely. But no, anyway, Sam... It, and I, I don't know. Sam's irrelevant. I, I got you. You derailed me, Benjamin Boyce. No, you I derailed. Used to him. A you lot. brought up waking up. I derailed up. me, Benjamin Boyce. <laughs> I used to meditate a lot, and the instructions for meditation are that you don't. You're not meditating until you're not trying to meditate. You don't meditate until you stop trying to meditate. So as long as you're trying to meditate, you're not achieving it. And how do you how do you meditate then? Well, you stop doing things. Well, how do you stop doing it? You just stop. So how do you find the authentic? Is you stop searching for it, that and it's one of these profoundly simple things, profoundly simple things. Because when you're seeking the authentic, especially in a world of forty mirrors, all I can think every time Wilco brings up the Hall of Mirrors, though, is Bruce Lee, right? With you know, he's got all the slashes on him, and he's like, yeah, you like, you know, this whole thing, and he like kills that guy, and it's an awesome movie. And so I'm thinking of that, but the thing is, if you're in that hall of mirrors all the time, the way that you figure out where you are is you stop looking at the mirrors. You just pay attention to yourself. You stop doing it. You stop looking for the thing out there. You stop looking for the authentic. The authentic's already there. You're already in the authentic every instant that you're alive. You just have to stop looking for it somewhere else, and you'll realize that. And But that's almost impossible to do. And so that's probably not the pivot you wanted to have, but I wanted to say it before Very I got close. too far away from it. Very and you close. can pivot. I'm going to put this book that was not that good somewhere else. So Christianity. Uh, should mm -hmm. we let critical social justice infect it, take it over? and It already uh, has. Okay, well, yeah. then— well, okay, because like usually we, we, we've <laughs> spoken a lot, we, we've done a lot of diagnosis, and in every conversation we try to do tactics of, of countering this. But I want to focus instead of tactics against the woke so-called, what about the institution of Christianity is something that might be sustained? Do we want to sustain it? Because, James, you do do a lot of fighting with them, alongside them, and even for them. Wokel, I know you're a Christian, uh, and I think that I'm going to guess you want something of that uh, uh, preserved because it might be somewhat something in Christianity, maybe or maybe not, might be a way for human beings, at least Western human individuals, to reassert authenticity uh, right. with a narrative that ties them to each, each other and the transcendent and themselves. So uh, I would say two things. I said on Twitter that James – Winston Churchill was asked – um, whether he was a pillar of the church because he went so very rarely, right? It's not even clear. I don't even know if Winston Churchill was actually a Christian or not. He might not have been. I think there's some evidence that he's an agnostic, but at the very least, if he if he had anything to do with church, it was very rarely that he attended a service. I think maybe Christmas and Easter. And someone asked him if he was a pillar of the church, and he said, no, I'm a flying buttress defending it from outside. And I think that James is that. James is a flying buttress James has put nice down. Booty. Um, um, it's got to fly. You got to fly butt, James. 
James is, is has uh, stepped away from, and I don't think you ever really were in the angry atheist movement as much as you were in the thoughtful yes atheist movement, right? And you've moved, you you. you all the atheists can can kind of go one of two ways. They can either try and destroy religion, or they can try and make religion better. And James has kind of taken the Jonathan Haidt um, view of this and to say, not only will I make religion better, I'll actually defend it if it does what it's supposed to do and does it well. Because what is it if I don't to do, defend, then? if I don't defend a religion that does itself well by creating meaning and helping build people, build community, okay. a bad version will show up and it will have very bad things happen. So let's defend the good thing. So I want to make that point first. James has been very good, uh, has been wonderful for this, and I am, and all Christians ought to be very thankful for him for doing this. And I hope to be a flying buttress for the rationalist community, which is why I will defend Star Slate Codex or Slate Star Codex and why I defend James and Peter and why I write for Counterweight because I want to defend them as well because we kind of need each other. We provide in certain ways, in the same way the conservatives provide the gas pedal and the brake of society, um, we, we provide different aspects of the steering mechanisms of society, right? So... Um, James is correct that it 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 has, and uh, back before I was Christianity all, has before, been infected by critical social justice ideology. Yes, the ironically the one Christian institution that I can think of, and I say this as a charismatic evangelical Pentecostal that might have might be able to survive this is the Catholic Church. And the reason for this is because the Catholic Church institutionally sees itself as being around 2,000 years old. And very recently they apologized for something they did in like the 1300s or like the 1370s. <laughs> the, they did? Like what, like the, stealing some share crops or something? <laughs> yeah, I don't, remember, I don't remember what they did, but they apologized for something from like the 1300s. The... The reaction for people to respond instantly for stuff, like the Vatican is going to look at the current woke moment and say, ah, no, we're not moving. They, they don't institutionally budge. And so they might, just by sheer force of, of not moving, be able to withstand. Because trying to march through that institution is is it's not built to change. It's built not to change. And so the mechanisms to change it that the woke usually take advantage of simply don't exist in in Catholicism. Woke Pope, though. <laughs> they, if they, they could even try and get a woke Pope, but even they have woke a woke Pope. pope. Yeah, they, but right, they have a very social justice oriented pope. That's true. But even the woke Pope still said men are men, women are women, and abortion is wrong. Like, there's certain that's, things that. They That's can't. true. There are places that won't budge. So for I saw in the, oh, the chat somebody said what's a, what's a true Christian, right? And so um, you know I don't I don't that's a complicated and difficult question, and I don't think it's a terribly fruitful question to try to get into. But uh, certainly I think that there are better and worse approaches to understanding what's going on, say in a in attack. So a lot of the the evangelicals that I spend time with are very strong on uh, using careful exegetical exegetical methods on the scripture. They want to understand original authorial intent, and they want to try to extract from the 
the scripture a coherent narrative, or at least a sufficiently coherent narrative, using those methods to understand what the message that they believe that God put in that text is, and then to live according to that message as though it is the absolute and objective truth. And this is the key aspect, is that there is, for somebody who's going to be a true Christian, there is going to be this absolute and objective truth, and there are going to be more and less rigorous methods to obtain it. And I am happy to defend people who want to believe that or who do believe that, and I'm happy to defend people who are willing to at least give serious consideration to that aspect of using rigor, the most rigorous methodologies. What I share in common with them, from maybe what we'll refer to as the, uh, the, the rationalist perspective, is that I believe that there is a world and that that world is objectively true, that which is occurring in the world is objectively true, and that the methodologies we use in order to determine what's going on in that world are better and worse, and that we should be heading toward choosing better methodologies over worse methodologies using the most objective criteria to determine uh, what was the outcome. You know, judge a tree by its fruit, according to Jesus. Well, what was the outcome in, in this case? And then that's something that we share in common, so that's why we can act as buttresses to one another. But at the same time, what's going to qualify somebody as a true versus heretical Christian is certainly that they're going to have to be at least concerned with this. I do understand that there's enough flexibility in both method and in uh, how the scripture is going to be read and interpreted, where you will end up with people in different denominations who are hashing, you know, well, what what, what does that mean? Who, who could both be considered true Christians in that sense? Well, what does that mean? It means that you have a church over here that's of one tradition, and you have another church over here of another tradition, and they've used say, fairly rigorous methods and within their tradition, and they've come to different conclusions, and in a sense, they're two entities that are saying, I'm going to live this way because I'm pretty sure it's right, and we can continue to hash this out in conversation between each other, we can compare our methods, we can have our debates, and so on. But there's this kind of fundamental thing that they agree upon below that, which is, uh, you know, that there is a method, that that the Scripture does represent revealed truth and objective truth that then we are subject to, which, for me, I don't see it in Scripture, I see it in the world, and so I say, well, the, the world is revealing truth, in a sense, to us, mm. and we can learn that truth via various methods, and then whatever that truth is, we have to subject ourselves to. It's when people decide that they can make truth or that truth is not yet made, but is becoming. It's in a process of becoming. That dialectic we were talking about is one way that people tend to think this, that you start running into some real issues. And then you do have to be careful where you have heretical interpretations of certain, you know, scriptures or whatever, that when you have somebody who's in a, you know, a very solid tradition or whatever, that has strong exegetical methods, they're probably going to be able to, with some authority, say, no, here's where you went badly wrong in interpreting the scripture to get to where you got. Um, so, I don't know, that's a difficult thing to answer, but people who believe that there's an objective truth and that we can learn something about that objective truth, whether they want to ground that metaphysically through the Bible, whether they want to ground that metaphysically through um, something like the scientific method, if they want to ground that metaphysically through something like Taoism, I don't care. Uh, but however they want to ground it metaphysically, 
but that there is this objective truth that we can know something about, you're going to find me in alliance with those people. There's and then something people that who can be that, testable and accountable. There's some sort of string of accountability yes. and testability. That's right. These things. That's yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Method matters. Merit matters. You know, do do you not just credentialism, actual merit. Are your analyses good? Are your analyses rigorous? Can they be checked by other people uh, who might have different motivations and yet you know, that's usually a pretty good test. Would your opponent be able to, somebody who's who's ideologically opposed to you, be able to look at your analysis and say, well, I don't like what they did here, but they did it right. You know, that's usually a pretty good test that a methodology is probably onto something. Hmm. Yeah, I would, I would, I would want to add something here as well, because I, I don't know if I'm shoehorning this in. Maybe I am a little bit, but. Um, there is I have been screaming about this on Twitter and saying, you know, um, the worldview of the postmodern worldview is is incompatible with Christianity for the same reason that it's incompatible with enlightenment liberalism, namely that um, depending on how you want to put it, you could say everything is hyper real, but if you adopt the postmodern worldview, um, it's not that's Baudrillard's view, but that's all been mixed and mashed with Derrida and Foucault. So now you're operating in a world where truth is not knowable, um, reality is untouchable, everything is a centerless flux. Um, there are no categories which can be applied to the world properly. Everything is can be redescribed infinitely. There is no, um, hmm. there are no permanent absolute truths of any kind right like i mean all all of that stuff the nihilistic um despair both epistemologically and uh socially of of postmodernism is just simply incompatible with christianity right the destruction of all categories and all meaning mm -hmm. which and i know that derrida screamed that he wasn't a relativist i realized that he did that but like others in the analytic tradition including my friend john Searle, who i'm going to read in a second wait derrida, you're, you're friends with john and up no i'm not friends with john i'm calling him my friend john Searle. that's colloquial i wish i was would be cool with john Searle. it would be cool if you're oh, Searle. he's a cool guy uh, yeah i got um, excited for just, a second there yeah. i wish that Searle was my friend i wish that i knew him but but um, our friend John Searle in the analytic tradition, um, and this is what he writes, and and he, Searle in his typical clear way smacks it on the head, because um, he does this. I believe that Derrida's work, at least those portions I have read, is not just a series of muddles and gimmicks. There is a fact, a large issue being addressed, and a large mistake being made. This is Searle writing about Derrida. The philosophical tradition that goes from Descartes to Husserl, and indeed a large part of the philosophical tradition that goes back to Plato, involves a search for foundations, metaphysically certain foundations of knowledge, foundations of language and meaning, foundations of mathematics, foundations of morality, etc. Husserl, for example, sought sought such foundations by examining the content of his conscious experiences while suspending or, quote, bracketing, unquote, the assumption that they referred to an external world. By doing so, he hoped to isolate and describe pure and indubitable structures of experience. Now in the 20th century, most under, mostly under the influence of Wittgenstein and Heidegger, we've come to believe that this general search for these sorts of foundations is misguided. There aren't any in the way of classical metaphysicians, metaphysicians supposed any foundations for ethics and knowledge. 
For example, we can't in the traditional sense. Now, careful about that traditional sense. There aren't there aren't in the way classical metaphysicians supposed any foundations for ethics or knowledge. He's not saying that those things don't exist. He's saying that like the ancient philosophy of say Plato and his forms, that's wrong. He says we don't need that. For example, we can't in the traditional sense found language and knowledge on quote sense data unquote because our sense data are already infused with our linguistic and social practices. Derrida correctly sees that there aren't any such foundations, but then he makes the mistake that marks him as a classical metaphysician. The real mistake of the classical metaphysician was not the belief that there were metaphysical foundations, but rather the belief that somehow or other foundations, such foundations, were necessary. I'll read that again. The real mistake of the classical metaphysician was not the belief that there were metaphysical foundations, but rather the belief that somehow or other such foundations were necessary. Is the Cyril suggesting that, are, that okay. Wait, wait, okay. he's going to clear it up. Right. The belief that unless there are foundations or something or other is lost, is threatened or undermined or is put to question. So he says the real mistake of classical metaphysician was not the belief that there were metaphysical foundations. The mistake is that the belief that that such foundations are necessary. The belief that unless there are foundations, something is lost or threatened or undermined or put to question. That's the problem, Searle says. It is this belief that Derrida shares with the tradition he seeks to deconstruct. Derrida sees that the Husserlian project of transcendental grounding for science, language, and common sense is a failure. But what he fails to see is that this doesn't threaten science, language, or common sense in the least. As Wittgenstein says, it leaves everything, as Wittgenstein says, it leaves everything exactly as it is. The only, quote, foundation, unquote, for example, that language has or needs is that people are biologically, psychologically, and socially constituted so that they succeed in using it to state truths, give and obey orders, to express their feelings and attitudes, to thank, apologize, warn, congratulate, etc. <laughs> now here, I'm gonna, he's going to do something that James is going to love. One sometimes gets the impression that deconstruction is a kind of game that anyone can play. One could, for example, invent a deconstruction of deconstructionism as follows. In the hierarch hierarchical opposition, deconstruction slash logocentrism, phono fallow logocentrism, the privileged term deconstructionism is in fact subordinate to the devalued term logocentrism, for in order to establish the hierarchical superiority of deconstruction, the deconstructionist is forced to attempt to represent its superiority, its axiological primacy, by argument and persuasion, by appealing to the logocentric values he tries to devalue. But his efforts to do this are doomed to failure because of the internal inconsistency in the concept of deconstruction itself because of its very self-referential dependence on the authority prior uh, on the authority of a prior logic by an apparetical offenbung deconstruction deconstructs itself that's john hebung i love searle so that's hilarious is so searle is getting right to the nub of this he's he's gonna hammer it home here he's saying look man Everything that Derrida does is based on the idea, is accepting that all of what we were doing before with language and logic and truth, all of that um, required these metaphysical foundations. And you'll notice he doesn't say morality. He doesn't jettison morality. And Searle doesn't, at least not there, he doesn't jettison the possibility of any metaphysics at all. He doesn't do that. 
Hmm. Um, he just says, in terms of language and truth and common sense, we don't need it. We can get by in the world without it. And so yeah. Cyril's point is, hey, Derda, you're, you, you got rid of all of the things that you thought substance and accident and the forms and you thought you got rid of the you you showed that there were no metaphysical foundations for 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 the meaning of language and truth and Searle's point is hey derda we don't need metaphysics to ground the meaning of uh, of language or to get objectivity <laughs> and thought and truth reality will do yeah human, reality is human enough. beings simply speak we simply make meaning and playing, trying to deconstruct that and apply it to some sort of uh, metaphysic is, is a hollow thing. It's, it's going too far. Human beings simply speak, and we make sense out of the world. That's what we do. And, and Cyril is saying here, look, Derda, because and, and people, a lot of people said that the Cyril Derda spat of the 80s, which a lot of people don't know about and haven't read about, um, they think that, that that this is that they were talking past each other. I don't think they were. I think these were two philosophers who understood each other and and were arguing from within their respective traditions. And I think that people can't get past the fact that continentals talk like continentals and analytics talk like analytics and think they're going past each other. I think Searle gets it on the head. Searle states exactly what the thing is and then says, look, Derda, I think you're wrong. I think we can get we can anchor our objectivity in reality and if we can get traction in the world that's enough. I don't need to have categories from God that come down and establish themselves as undeconstructible and unblurable and perfectly clear platonically crystallized forms. I don't need that. All I need to be able to do is interact with the world and describe it in ways which are more or less accurate, and I can get purchase on objectivity that way. I don't need the metaphysics. The world will do. Now, as a Christian, I would say I do need metaphysics for a lot of what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm okay with that, but I can find common cause with Searle here mm -hmm. to say that in terms of the meaning of my words and my describing of the various objects around me and my ability to engage with James, I don't need, I don't need to call in all of my metaphysical machinery. I'm perfectly content yeah. to say the world will do. And if James is willing to grant me the world and I'm willing to grant him the world, then we're willing to grant that we're both in the world and causally connected to the world. As Searle says in 2001's Rationality in Action, that there's a world-to-mind relationship where my mind takes information about the world and there's a mind-to-world relationship where I change the world by acting in it. And if we can do that, and then we have recognition of each other's intentions and charitability, we can get by just fine. There's no need to say that that, that I don't need... I mean, James said we kill the Buddha, yes, but don't kill the author. <laughs> See, this is the kind of thing that, that postmodernism really has at its heart, and this is why that postmodern thing is 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 a catastrophe, and it's also why postmodernism is going to be a catastrophe within within the church. And as since it's kind of what we were talking about, Lyotard describes what I mentioned before: legitimation by paralogy, and he kind of describes a postmodern condition as believing. That all legitimation is by paralogy. So legitimation by paralogy is a very fancy sounding term that means that when we consider something as legitimate, it's because there's a consensus that people believe that it's legitimate. So what he's done, again, is the same mistake. He's taken a step away from the world, says that uh, the world is kind of irrelevant here. Uh, it's just what people decide to agree about the world. It's There's these social conventions that we've all decided these things will be true and these things are reasonable to say and so on and so forth. And the, 
the the problem that they have is that they they believe that all attempts to understand the world fall within that category. And even if in some, you know, technicality laden philosophical sense they do, certain ones among them do less so than others. Mm-hmm. Like Humpty Dumpty language is completely di- where the word means what I mean it to mean when I say it, nothing more, nothing less, is is a far worse approach than, all right, look, language is a, a set of conventions, but let's agree upon what all the words mean so that we can create shared intention about a world world that we both interact in, and we try to describe that. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that our descriptions, while we may pick out different things, you know, you hear these kind of very almost smarmy, stupid things within postmodernism. Well, if Wokel and I both looked at a tree, he might describe the leaves while I describe the bark and dirt. It's just ridiculously, transparently stupid. It's like if we actually said, like, look, let's look at the same kind of small area, see what we see. And he starts, you know, talking about this, the lichen, and I start talking about the bark and be like, no, look at the bark. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I see the bark, too. But I was intrigued. So there is this ability for us to connect to the same reality, to view the same reality, to adopt shared terminology. And this is where you start getting into this kind of dangerous stuff where people want to start screwing around with, well, let's use double meanings of every word. Let's whether it's diversity or equity or whatever it is, let's use double meanings of so many different words. And then you can kind of occupy this space where you can screw around with language and then use it to extract power. And you can start to believe that you live in a world where it is just legitimation by consensus. Hmm. Um, You're going to mock, but none of that is is necessary. Well, sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what you see like with like religion is then, well, what is the thing that everybody has to talk about right now to be considered a good person? Well, it's being anti-racist. So now we're going to reframe sin in terms of anti-racism. And we're going to have pastors getting tearful up in front of their congregations around some dorky video and saying, I'm a racist. I've always been a racist. You know, you have these pastors that are doing this. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, um, you know, because they mean something different by what they're saying. What they're saying is, you know, I've always had sin. I've been, you know, I'm susceptible to these different kinds of biases. I've thought different things at different times or whatever it happens to be. But man, hmm. that's not what most, not what people are ever fully going to believe. This is one of my big white pills, by the way. I put this on Twitter yesterday. This is one of my big white pills. I was talking with one of my kind of like Marine Corps, you know, jarhead type buddies um, you know, very down to earth, blue collar, solid, rock solid guy a long time ago, um, late last summer, middle of last summer, maybe. So, you know, right in the thick of everything going crazy and it being very unclear what's going on. And we're talking about the idea of racism losing all of its meaning, which is obviously something people are still talking about. I just saw, you know, John McWhorter shared, I don't know if he wrote it. I think he did write it an article saying that, yeah, he did write it, that racism's lost all of its meaning and the words and how they're misusing words. Now, what my friend, who's disconnected from all this Matrix-level <laughs> blue pill bullshit, said to me in very plain words was, we didn't forget what racism means. We're just not playing in the stupid game. So hopefully we beat the game, but we still know what racism is and we're still not going to do it. And so it's, you know, when you think about white pills, you know, one of these things, one of the risks of critical race theory is sparking a race war, whether that's just verbally, whether it goes hot, whether it mm-hmm. is in you know the religious sense where it tears apart churches, different things you know could all happen. And people have reported you know lots of negative effects of being exposed now unwillingly to critical race theory thought and activism in those lines. 
But the second you kind of take the take the red pill and get out of the stupid matrix where you feel like you have to participate in the game, you're my you're my jarhead buddy. You're like, no, I know what that is. I don't need anybody to tell me what it is. I already know, yeah. you know, and I'm not going to do it. It's bad. Yeah. And it's just that simple for a lot of people. And if that's this is one of the reasons why I keep kind of advocating. It's like get out of the language game system. Stop playing the game where everything appears to just be, you know, legitimation by pyrology or everything appears to be a manufactured hyper real. No, just know what you know, know who you are, and you actually can get past this stuff. Yeah. Guys, I got to a dog in your screen in, too, Benjamin. In about 15 minutes. Local closing argument. Oh, I'll close with the kitty. Careful with Cujo there. He's wanting food. And I got I I got another. Live I can relate. I gotta get on. Oddly enough, Vocal, you're I, in high form today. I think you're zoning out now, but you were you, you used were just, all of his I'm energy. Looking for, I'm looking used, for something very specific. You guys were both just this is this is a starlit night. Uh, Luckily, I ate the the boiled eggs earlier and ruined my entire day, and then moved on to having Lombus my bread. Tarone duro. Yeah. yeah, my my lembas. Uh, yeah, uh, Tyrone. It is close to Lembas. Everybody should have Tyrone. Although I oh, somebody what was asking called. about Blondo, uh, Blondo. dialectical maths of Marx. Yeah, I don't know though. I don't know that part of Marx though, so I can't talk about it. So I, was, I feel bad that I can't answer a question that somebody was really interested to hear me talk about. I'm not really a big fan of fake math. Like fake math kind of annoys me pretty bad after that two plus two equals five thing last year. <laughs> like I still have eyelids twitching over fake math. Um, I just put on the encyclopedia on my on new discourse is a, the mathematesh. That's where you put mathemat and then an X that, that Rochelle Gutierrez made up. Mathematesh. That is the craziest. Like, I didn't even know how to write that entry on the encyclopedia just to confess for, for the hente here. I didn't even know how to write it. So I mostly just quoted her because I was like, I read the paper four or five times. And I'm like, I still don't know what this is. This is insanity. I, I hate to use the word insanity for a number of reasons to describe this. But this mm. properly is. You know, it's like learn maths from plants and look to what is it other non non-human entities or something like that we're supposed to learn mathematics from it's like oh my god this lady's completely off of her nut and what kills me zero degrees of mathematics of course so she's going to reinvent a new mathematics for us with zero degrees of mathematics Ooh. uh okay and now speaking of math though while Wokel does his specific searching when i say I, I hate fake math i do hate fake math i don't I don't hate when people want to do things like, oh, let's play around in semi-groups. Let's try different axiomatic constructions. Let's, you know, add this axiom or take that axiom away and see what happens. Uh, that's all fine. That's not fake math. That's that's just math. Fake math is a different thing altogether where it's just, you know, ideological math. There's no way that's going to work out good for people. So whatever whatever Marx had in mind is probably not actual math. Um Mark's math. But I would have to look that up. I have not read about his dialectical math uh, yet. Caesar. Like, like, thanks for thanks for more things to read that are just things to make fun of, I guess. James, how are you going to eat dinner if you don't have any food? Oh, did Wokel find his uh, mission? I don't know. I'll probably figure something out. Maybe I will go buy food at a place. Oh, maybe I will go to a, a restaurant. Well, in my state, you're allowed to do things. Burger. Okay, yeah. No, we don't have that here, though. But in my state, we I love Smashburgers. But in my state, we are we are allowed to do things, 
because we are one of those states where we are realizing that our freedom is not actually attached to some vaccine. We're in a, in a state where we're where we realize that maybe we have been living under the biopolitics that Foucault was warning about Bio with COVID politics. policy. Biopolitics. Vocal, it's amazing he's allowed to be on Zoom without a mask on given that he's in Canada. Well, uh, you never yeah, know. He's that's like that's true. Mask. It's amazing that you'd be allowed to wear a mask without wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> Searle. It's masks all the way down. Searle is going to... Um, I'm, I'm reading here and intentionally. I thought it was in Rediscovery of the Mind, but it's actually here. Um... Intentionality differs from other sorts. Of, so in, he's going to say that he's going to take a naturalistic approach to intentionality. Intentionality is ofness or aboutness, right? It's it's the content of of your mental thoughts that can be directed towards something else. So the yeah. fact that, for example, um, the word the term Eiffel Tower is about a large structure in Paris, right? The about relationship, the or my thought of a tree the ofness the about that relation relationship intentionality differs from other sorts of biological phenomena and that it has a logical structure and just as there are evolutionary priorities so there are logical priorities a natural consequence of the biological approach advocated in this book is to argue is to regard meaning in the sense in which speakers mean something by their utterances as a special development of more primitive forms of intentionality. So he's going to cite intentionality to what's going on in the mind, right? Now, as a Christian, you might want to quibble about about the bio, the purely biological um roots of intentionality, because you'd want to have something like a soul or a spirit. But the point is that he's going to say that meaning speech, meaning because I'm my physical infrastructure is going to say things and write things down, that fact is a product of me acting, and that's going to be a product of, of intentionality, the ofness or aboutness. So what he's going to say is, <laughs> so, cons- so, so, um, so intentionality is a, uh, so meaning as a special development of more primitive forms of intentionality, right? So meaning in the sense in which speakers mean something by their utterances as a special development of more primitive forms of intentionality. So construed, speakers' meaning should be entirely definable in terms of more primitive forms of intentionality, right? And the definition is non-trivial in this sense. We define speakers' meaning in terms of forms of intentionality that are not intrinsically linguistic. If, for example, we can define meaning in terms of intentions, we will have defined a linguistic notion in terms of a non-linguistic notion, even though many, perhaps most, human intentions are in fact linguistically realized. In other words, language is bootstrapped up from something else in consciousness, right? That's right. That's right. I've been making that argument for a very long time is that the point of language is to create shared intention. Your mind has an idea. My mind has an idea. And the point of language is to get roughly, very approximately, the same idea in both minds uh, wait, for wait. The, the space wait. of communication. His next sentence, for what you just wait. said, his next sentence, on this approach, the philosophy of language is a branch of the philosophy of mind. There we go. Yeah. It, so it, it, It's right. That's exactly it. It's, it's intention sharing and and... 
In its most general form, it amounts to the view that certain fundamental semantic notions such as meaning are analyzable in terms of even more fundamental psychological notions such as belief, desire, and intention. Such views are fairly common in philosophy, but there is considerable disagreement among adherents of the view that language is dependent on the mind as to what the analysis of semantic notions should look like. And then he goes on from there, right? So Searle is 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 hitting this point and and he's he's getting right into the thing and saying look meaning is about intention derda gets it wrong with his theory of language derda is going to say that the that the that the words are defined and get their meaning from their relationship to each other and their relationship in the world and searle's going to say no man Mm -hmm. searle's going to make two points first of all the words differ derda in virtue of what how they're (laughs) pronounced no, in virtue of what? By virtue of what they refer to, but dare they just refer to other words, and if all the words refer to other words, what defines which words refer to other words and how the definitions are put together, Derda? It's the meaning. People. It's the derivative intentionality. The intentionality is in my head. The derivative intentionality is the social recognition that we all have that certain words are used in certain ways and are the products of particular forms of intentionality. That's the point. It's the shared intention. It's the shared lexicon. That's why the lexicon is the repository of all the – of as Peter Campbell says in the in the Critique of the Liberal Idea of a Person, the lexicon is the repository of all the distinctions that human beings have thought worth making, that they intended to make. It's all yeah. rooted in the intentionality. That's Searle's point. That's why the der- Derridians and the post-structuralists get it wrong. Their view of language is wrong. What do they differ in virtue of? Their meaning, which comes from what? Intentionality, which is produced by minds. Now, Christians are going to say, well, hold on, Searle's a naturalist. Yes, but we can take Searle. We don't – the naturalism of Searle isn't required for his theory of the meaning of language in the same way that the metaphysics – that the Derridean metaphysics of language, which Derrida rejects metaphysics, Searle's naturalism is not required to adopt that understanding of language in the same way that the postmodern worldview is required to adopt deconstruction. And the thing that the Christians miss when they say, well, what about the atheistic assumptions of STEM? Uh, We don't need atheistic assumptions in STEM, nor do we need naturalistic assumptions. Methodological naturalism is the only the assumption that God's not going to do a miracle. There's no... the the philosophical assumptions of naturalism are not required for me to do science, but the philosophical assumptions of postmodernism are required for you to do deconstruction proper. Like for you to do a Derridean mm-hmm, deconstruction mm-hmm. or a yeah. proper Foucaultian deconstruction, you need to adopt the postmodern worldview, right? Now, you can sort of adopt bits and pieces of the insight if you set it on different foundations, but to fully accept deconstruction... You can't do any of the uh, – it's almost impossible to do any of the Derridean deconstruction outside of art um, if you, unless you accept certain tenets of postmodernism, which you might want to reject. A liberal-ish deconstruction-ish way of looking at things where we map out the genealogy of a term and then look at the, at the meaning of the term is possible, but then you'd have to accept a different theory of language. So the deconstruction of Derrida and Foucault and those people, you have to accept postmodernism. I don't need to accept naturalism to accept the idea that linguistic meaning is tied to 
cog to the to intentionality and th- and that's the point that needs to be hammered home me and james can share a view of language and the world and then communicate on that basis and go forward on certain things without me having to accept his naturalism and without him having to accept my christian metaphysics but we cannot both enter into a deconstructive world in Christianity, because as Jeffrey Bennington says in a lecture that he gave at the University of, um, oh, I can't remember, he Illinois. was asked about this, and he said, Missouri. Um, Bennington was a student Utah. of Lyotard who wrote a book called Jacques Derrida, where Jacques Derrida was the co-author. It's it's uh, Bennington tries to fully explicate uh, um, Derrida's work, and then uh, Searle underneath does a running commentary on that explication. Um, and they wrote that book together. And Bennington says, as soon as you accept Derrida's metaphysics, the traditional conception of God is in some serious trouble and is probably gone. And in fact, Derrida thinks it is gone. And that's the difference. And I don't think people are realizing that point. Like, people think that I don't realize or that me and James don't understand what Derrida is doing. No, the point is that we do understand that Der- what Derrida is doing. That's why there's a problem. <laughs> I suggest, or I propose, that on our next call, our next uh chat we focus on the analytics we focus on Cyril. we we focus on what we uh the other thing we've been focusing a lot on postmodernism ever since i've been talking yeah. to you guys maybe it's time to yep. step into the positive the analytic light i don't know if positivism is a thing or not and what you guys adhere to or not but maybe we can take a venture into the positive uh realm of meaning making and i mean i'm not huge with like russell or whatever but i'm pretty sure neo-marxism is just an angry reaction to positivism because people like bertrand russell just blew hegel up they completely blew hegel up and then the neo-marxists were like we're gonna fix this we're gonna show you positivism is the worst thing that's ever happened yep yes i actually think that's correct and i actually think that part of it is a reaction to carnap specifically um, and and part of what's going on there is in um the crisis of european sciences husserl hits on the idea of 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 positivism going too far and by the way it is now routinely admitted um that that the verificationists got things wrong and took their positivism way, way, way too far. Um, the last gasp of positivism is probably um, uh, uh, language semantics and ontology by Rudolf Carnap in 1950, and that that that's probably the last gasp. But they they put the the they tied um, positivism to Nazism uh, in certain ways and said that that it that one sets the ground for the other, and I think that's tremendously unfair because. Carnap um, provides his own, I believe it's Rudolf Carnap that provides his own stinging critique. And part of his verificationism is a reaction to and against Nazism. One of his friends was actually shot in um, a stairwell. And the guy was Jewish and shot in 1936, I believe. And then the Nazis left the guy who, who shot him when they came to power. And the whole point is... Part of what Carnap says is that, look, when, when the Germans get up and said, and the Third Reich for a thousand years shall rise upon the wings of eagle and spread itself over the... Mo-. And, 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 and Carnap's point is that what you're saying is meaningless emotional, emotional goading of people, and he wants to attack that, right? That's what's part of motivating his positivism, is he wants to call the bluff of the Nazis and the totalitarians and basically say to them... 
tell us what you actually mean and accurately describe the world, you, you, you guys. Stop hiding what you're saying and tell us what's going on in the ground. Because when you say, well, we shall rise as the sphere, as the communism, as it stretches its loving hands over the equality. And you go, like, no. Like, your political, your soaring political rhetoric is detached from anything that actually exists, and that's why they develop their thing. And I think that James is right. It is a reaction to it. I think he's absolutely right about that. And they did go too far. But, I mean, the the guys who are like the hermeneuticists in Christianity who are criticizing and saying, well, you guys are talking about – the, the, the hermeneutic people are saying, well, just look, your approach to language was tried back with Fraga. And it's like, dude, it's been 80 years, man. The analytics haven't been sitting still. Okay. So I love that. Wokel, this is an entire conversation. That's like – that's a four-hour conversation that you just dumped at the end of our three-hour conversation. So <laughs> we need to – Good. I, I have to go. To come back. <laughs> yeah. So I have to go. Closing thoughts. Thank you guys for joining us. I think we had a really good, uh, productive time, and I will try to release this as an audio file so people can plug in on their podcast. Wokel, you are connected with New Discourses. No. James is with New Nudist Courses. Wokel's uh, working. You're working with Counterweight. Any other things that we should plug? Projects on the horizon? Uh, I think people pretty much know what you're doing, but anything to tease them with, James? No, no, you guys kind of are aware of what I'm doing. I'm really trying to develop the podcast side of what I'm doing at New Discourses, so I'm going to have an amplification of that. I'm probably going to start doing a live stream Q&A kind of thing. So tease, tease, tease here. You know, I'll figure out how to turn on my own camera without your lovely mug in the um, coordinating chair, Benjamin. <laughs> but if I figure out how to bring people on, you can come on too and whatever. But it'll probably be an AMA-style thing. I'll frame out a topic, yeah. and then we'll do an AMA and I don't know how frequently to do that. Twice a week, twice a month, somewhere once, between. Once I don't a week know. or twice, twice a yeah, month. Yeah, I think is probably be good. Yeah, something like that. As long as you yeah, save I should room make for a us. Courses as well. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I still interview zero people. People keep telling me to get people on my podcast, and it's like they're like, "Have so and so," and I'd be like, "That'd be my first podcast interview with somebody else," and it's like that's kind of a niche topic for a first one. Like maybe not. But if I can get Donald Trump to come on my podcast, he said he's doing those. I'll have him on mine. He'll be do my it. first guest. Do it. Get Rogan. Get well, if anybody Jordan, knows. Get Donald. Do it. Yeah, they're, they're, that's it. Rogan, uh, Peterson, and, and and the Donald. Those are, <laughs> those are my podcast guests. I just don't know how to make that any of that happen yet. Just stay tuned. Well, we know how to make you happen, James. I got to get going, guys. <sighs> uh, I got to. I do too because I ha- I had like a bunch of boiled eggs and nothing else today. Yeah. So you go eat local. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate your patience with my dumping a 40-minute conversation with you at the end. <laughs> no, it was like a four-hour conversation. <laughs> four-hour conversation. Uh, <laughs> we'll I hope I got all that back history right. I was doing it off the top of my head. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> guys. I appreciate right. you having me. Have a good night. Have a good night, good night.